Well, it looks like our uh, Latin episode from last week um, went over pretty well. I got a lot of uh, response on the uh, classical end. That's good to hear. How about you in the jazz? You got anybody right? I a couple of likes. Yeah, a couple, couple of likes. likes yeah, there, so. it's nice. They're uh, good, uh, supportive fans in that uh, field of music, let's say. Yeah, Doug Beavers gave us a like there, so I was happy to see that. Right, right. I was talking to the guy from... Uh, Capris Records, you know, about the, the Fiesta Barroca Latina. I hope I got that right, or Latina Barroca. It was really great to talk to these people. And uh, the uh, singer, what was his name? The uh, Scottish Italian. <laughs> <laughs> Scottish Italian. He, he was really, he wrote to us, he was really flattered that I, um, you know, <laughs> said that he sounded Italian. Yeah. And yeah. He called himself, um, what did he, what, what's the word here? Ma Mexican, because he's a uh, Scottish and. Uh, and yeah, uh, right. Mexican. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. It sounds Mexican. That's a Jamie McDougal. Right. Yeah, he calls himself a Mexican because uh, he's taken to that culture so much. I know, it's really true, though. I thought he sounded Italian. Yeah, so check that out if you haven't heard last week's episode. That was kind of unique. You're not going to get to hear Mexican classical music in you know many places. So. Although, I have enough material now to do another oh, <laughs> Mexican <wow>. episode. <laughs> there was a, it's really funny, the, this... Um, Record came out on CD records um, of uh, Mexican guitar concertos. One of them is by Emmanuel Ponce, oh. who we covered last week. And I, I, I sent you the uh, the link for it, but um, we, we could do another one. All of this um, Mexican uh, classical music is suddenly coming out. Wow. And uh, maybe we'll do another one soon. We'll see. When we do a yeah. guitar episode, I could put that one on. Maybe. I always have we'll plenty see. of Latin jazz and stuff coming from Central and South America. So Latin jazz is it's up there with my favorite jazz, let's say. I'm always happy to hear a Latin jazz album. Either swinging or Latin rhythms that'll keep it lively and moving, make it exciting to listen to. Yeah, for right. sure. If you're listening for the first time, you're wondering, who are these guys? This is the Adult Music Podcast, the podcast with music yeah. for the mature mind. We bring you new classical releases and jazz every week, three of each. We go through them track by track. I'm your co-host, Russ, on the jazz side. And on the classical side, I'm your co-host, Mike, although we're really both on both sides. Yeah, we do both. Kind of, yeah. you know, we do both. We swing both ways. Yeah, we like both. <laughs> and we like all styles of music. We just have to have some parameters <laughs> to focus in on or else we'd never be able to make any decisions about what we're going to talk about here. And right. this is episode 125. Wow. That's uh, over 700 albums by now, right? Oh, yeah. Well, I think we're probably getting close are to we eight by Are now. we pushing yeah. 800 yet? It could be. Yeah. I, I have to get an exact the, count. the funny thing is, is if we weren't doing this podcast... I still would have probably listened to 800 albums in yeah. the last three years. <laughs> probably so. It's one of my <laughs> summer projects, and it looks like it's going to be a long, hot summer here in Japan and everywhere else, actually, in North America, Europe as well. The temperatures are North up the here. equator, anyway, yeah. Yeah, here it broke 100 the past couple of days, I think, 38 degrees Celsius, and there's no relief in sight. But one of the things I want to do is make a good database of all the recordings so that uh, we can look oh, wow. back and uh, know which artists and recordings we've covered at a quick reference. So that's one of that the things nice, I'll be working on. That would be nice because I forget all the time. Yeah. The dates, I can't remember which episode it is. Oh yeah, anything. it all yeah. sort of uh, blends together in our aging yeah, especially brains. Especially now. <laughs> <laughs> aging brains, I don't think even a young kid could <laughs> remember all this now. We've done too much. Anyway, this week we've got an interesting assortment as usual. I don't think we have a real uh, theme or a title, so we'll see if we can develop one as we go through here this week. As always, I have all these um, things piling up that I want to do, and I, right. they, they don't really fit into any sort of program. And I hate, like last year we um, 
when we got to the end of the year, I, I had missed so many good recordings I wanted to do because we were doing so many themed episodes. Right. So we got to get away from that a little bit. I like bit. do them every once in a while. Whatever. And I think we're going to do that for next week too, because uh, actually I found, I don't know how it is in classical, but the releases are sort of slowing to a trickle as we get into yeah. summer. And so I felt like yeah, the best thing was to just focus on newer things that I really wanted to get to. And uh, we'll see if themes develop when uh, more releases come out. But uh, we'll be getting just sort of the best of and things that we want to talk about for the next couple episodes, I think. And we're going to be recording with the Same Difference guys. Uh, That's right. Sometime at the end of this month or next month or whatever. The Same Difference, two jazz fans, one jazz standard podcast. If you haven't checked them out, they're a nice compliment to what we do. We talk about the new releases in classical and jazz. Well, they're jazz only, but they focus on one jazz standard for each episode, which comes out every two weeks. And they look at different versions of it. They play little samples for you. And they talk about the history and what makes each version different and what they like and don't like. So we're going to have a little collaboration with them. I think we've got to check on their schedules first and see when things line yeah. up. I'll do that this week now that we're getting a little bit freed up it's, here. It's it's going to be an intercontinental podcast, so the time sure should be great. Although, we, we could do this at 2 in the morning, I guess, without getting in trouble. Yeah, once we're over the summer, it'll be all right. Yeah. So that'll be an interesting <laughs> collaboration. It'll be a lot of fun. Check them out. There'll be a link for their podcast in the description. Also, a little promo at the end of our podcast, right. so stick around for that. And we, we can't make them listen to six albums. We no, I think to, we're going to... We're going to do three, I think. Yeah, we'll okay, cut it Two down, jazz and one classical. Two jazz and we'll one do. classical. And just yeah. use those as a springboard. <laughs> right, to see what happens. Fun, you know, if we have an hour-long episode, that's fine. I don't... Yeah, <laughs> don't we'll see how matter. it goes. I doubt that. Though. I think we'll have quite, quite a bit of material. Anyway, before we get into the music that we're going to talk about tonight, in the episode description, you can find links to all of the recordings. There's Spotify, there's Apple Music there for everything that we're going to talk about. Also, at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist with all the music in one place on Deezer. That's CD quality streaming from France. They also have the podcast you can listen to there. And if you can't see the full description or the recording list or the links don't work wherever you're listening to us, you can always come over to our host site, which is Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Everything's easy to follow and all the links work there. If you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us and tell a uh, music-loving friend about us. That's a good way for us to get new listeners. Also, if you take a moment to write a short review or give us a ranking, that helps us get listed in the recommendations, and new people can find us easier that way. Also, you can come over and check us out on Facebook. We've got a page there. You can get extra info. When I find new jazz releases, I always post them during the week. Get something new to listen to right away. Those things may make it into an episode, but they may not. I'm always up early in the morning, especially in the summertime. I've got the coffee out and I hit the new releases and I go through them and the best ones of the day I'll usually share on Facebook. As That's I like me them. when I used to work at, uh, I worked at NPR when I first got out of uh, college, the uh, right. classical music. This is how I kind of got into classical music. I used to do a morning classical show and it was kind of a nice way to start the day. I did yeah. that for two years and it just made me feel good. You know, I just got up early, we did the classical music. It was fantastic. I just felt good the rest of the day. I still do that really, except that I don't work for NPR anymore. If you come over to our Facebook, you can leave a message or a comment there as well. And if you want to contact us directly with any comments or questions, we'd be happy to hear from you. We'll be sure to reply, get in touch by email. Our address is adultmusicpodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. All right. Are we ready to go? Let's jump into the classical side. Okay, so since we were going to do our uh, 
normal program and not have a theme. So I always like to start with uh, Baroque music because yeah. that's uh, go just for the, Baroque. The best way to start the day. Yeah, I go for Baroque every week, and uh, <laughs> I'm feeling Baroque. Now. <laughs> 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 this podcast isn't making us any money at all. It's making us Baroque. Yeah, it's still a hobby. <laughs> we have to call yes. it a hobby. We can't call it a profession or anything like that. Anyway. So you can know by that that we only choose music that we have deep feelings about. Yeah, not only that, you're getting our real feelings about it, too. You're not, <laughs> it's not somebody somebody else told us to say about no. it. Okay. <laughs> Once that That's happens, sure. are we going to sell out when that happens? Depends Absolutely on the money, not. I think. No, we're not? Okay, good. Well, I don't want to, I don't think I could, really. I have to no. talk about the music I like. Yeah, I can't. I can't about music. You know, maybe something else I'll lie about. Yeah. <laughs> not music. Not music, no. <laughs> All right. Anyway, I have a few uh, Baroque recordings I wanted to do, and you'll be hearing some of them in the coming weeks. And uh, so I decided on um, this one because um, it's by La Serenissima, and uh, they follow us and write to us and leave nice comments on our Facebook site. Yeah, they do. So I was thinking, yeah, we should uh, probably uh, do this one first because it's been sitting on my uh, list and we haven't gotten a chance to do it and one of the reasons i have to confess that we haven't done it yet is because it's a double album it's 87 minutes right. long we were working i was like oh man this is gonna be a lot of listening <laughs> so, you know. i have to also say i have yet to be disappointed in any way by any of their recordings they're all really satisfying me too although there are some that i like more better than others course. and i'm gonna get into that okay a little for bit. me that would be more with just the content rather than you know their performance which i always rather enjoy me too, but the performances do change, and um, mm. okay, I kind of wish I had the, uh, I do have the booklet, I can kind of check that out here. Anyway, this album is called An Englishman Abroad by La, La Serenissima with Adrian Chandler. He's the director and also the uh, violinist, the solo violinist when mm. uh, that happens, on the Signum label from uh, the UK. Okay, and uh, as is often the case with an, with a La Serenissima album, I am attracted by the album cover. Yeah, they're always good. Which features a pile of old-fashioned leather luggage that looks like it's carrying much more than anyone would ever need on a trip. <laughs> this is kind of a, not a modern trip. This would be a trip from in the Baroque era when you're just going to move permanently uh, somewhere. It looks like this guy's got all of his uh, belongings in his, uh, his piled-up luggage. This guy, uh, Nicola Mateus the Younger, and I didn't know anything about this composer, though I did know about his father, Nicola Mateus, the, the elder, I guess, mm. <laughs> okay, because there was a great recording of his music by uh, Nicholas McGegan and uh, his ensemble on Harmonia Mundi Records back, I think, in the late 90s or early 2000s that I still have. It was, it's really great. Mm. So um, I was kind of curious about this when I saw it and wanted to hear that. So, yeah, this cover tells a story in itself. So let me tell you a little bit about Nicolette Mateus the Younger. The program kind of centers around, not him, but his time. He's not really on this album very much. He's just got two uh, hmm. two works, and then everything else is sort of um, other composers who were influenced him or were around at the time. Um, he was born in London around the year 1677, and his father was the Italian violinist and composer Nicola Mateus. So he's named after Okay. <laughs> his dad, who had, you know, he's been recorded before. I think Matthias the Younger might be making his first um, appearance on record here. Matthias, uh, the older Matthias, arrived in London in about uh, 1672. He was probably from the Naples area. And apart from a brief trip to France in 1678, he settled in England, where he enjoyed a successful career as a violinist during the last three decades of the 17th century. And he died in Norfolk in uh, 1713. It says, An Englishman Abroad the, is the name of the album. The abroad part of the program title refers to Matthias's trip to Vienna in 1700, 
to take up a post at the court of Holy Roman Emperor Leopold. And Matthias the Younger would die in Vienna in 1737, so he pretty much moved there and stayed. The presence of Purcell on this record can be felt in much of Matthias's music, and because of the cultural significance of the imperial court he worked for, it could be construed that Matthias was the chief architect of the dissemination of the English style on the continent, because it kind of appears in his mm. music. Okay. Now, I said it's a double album, but it's actually 87 minutes long. It's not very. It's not a very long double album. These could easily be two hours. This one comes in at just less than 90 minutes, so it just misses the uh, length of a normal CD. Right. By the way, we listen to this on streaming, so they just list the tracks from 1 to 31. I'm not going to go through every track. <laughs> okay, well, this is, I know in the ad we say, oh, we go track by track, but in this case, maybe not. We'll go piece by piece, <laughs> let's say. And the um, the CD, of course, um, I'll let you know when the CD break comes, but um, it's just listed 1 to 31 on streaming. Okay, so the first track is a piece by Henry Purcell, and this is um, his Chaconie. A Chacon would be sort of a sort of variations type of uh, movement. This is going to be a big influence on Matthias the Younger. This starts with strings playing emphatically to open the album. This track, the first thing I noticed, has a lot of room ambience on it, a lot of like kind of reverberation. Heard on the attacks, it's also recorded pretty close, so all details caught. So they're having it both ways here. They've got the close recording with all the detail, and you get the room ambience too. This has like thick harmony. I should have checked how many players they have on this, because it really sounds like a fairly big ensemble. I don't mean big orchestral, but I mean there are a lot of there are more than four players. Let's just put it that way. It's a chacon, so once we hear the theme, we hear slight variations on it over I said here the repeating bass figure, but uh, that fi repeating figure isn't necessarily played by the bass. It seems to move around, but it's a repeating figure. It could be a repeating chord pattern, too. In fact, the themes are rather cleverly handed around to various voices, surprisingly, at around the two-minute mark to the bass itself, which usually plays continuo. La Serenissima sound enthusiastic throughout the performance, making the rhythm leap out at us each time the chord pattern and opening phrase repeats. Uh, for the last iteration of the theme, the music gets quiet. I want to mention one thing that we're really going to hear on this album is like a strong sense of the rhythm of these pieces. Like the, the dancier rhythms will really leap out at us. All right, tracks two through six, uh, George Philippe Telemann, Overture Suite in G Major. Uh, this is a uh, four movement work and uh, we hear the traditional start to the overture. The ensemble again play this pretty emphatically, no dryness at all. It kind of seems foreboding, really, the mm. way this uh, starts. Room ambience is amply audible here, and again, the mics are really close to the instruments. Incidentally, that will be the case all the way through the album, this fairly long album. We'll hear that room ambience really making itself out until we get to the Brescianello piece at the end, but I'll mention that. There's something of a change there, but let's see. Let's see. At 150, the fugue begins, and with this kind of detail... I would have liked a bit more dryness to the ambience. There's a church-like space to the sound, and nothing gets lost. So it's almost like you're in the first row in a church, maybe, would be the uh, sound that we're getting. Let's move on to the lure, a slow dance movement. And we feel the beat in this one, which is very nice. The third movement, Bore 1 and Bore 2, is cheerful. The theme is heard here. It's uh, pretty heavily orchestrated. And uh, fourth movement, Menuet 1 and Menuet 2, has that slow Menuet dance quality to it. Here I noticed that there is a harpsichord continuo playing. Now I'm listening to this on streaming, and you lose a little detail 
when you listen to this on uh, Bluetooth, which is what I did because I have Bluetooth mm-hmm. headphones and I had the Bluetooth headphones on here. So I really need uh, some kind of direct connection to the <laughs> to the stereo to hear this at CD quality. Because what happens is certain elements become fainter and drop out as the sampling rate gets uh, lower. Uh, fifth movement, Air Angloise. Uh, heavy downbeat on this quicker but light-footed dance. Tracks 7 through 11, we finally get to Nicola Mateus the Younger. This is the first time I've hmm. ever heard his music. <laughs> Sinfonia Allegro. It should be Sinfonia, I think. Has a kind of uh, Handel-like flowing opening theme. This really reminded me of Handel. They say Purcell yeah. is his um, main uh, influence, but um, I thought Handel. In the United States, they're insisting that Purcell's name be pronounced Purcell. But why hmm. not? Well, it is Handel, I guess. You don't need to say Handel, but I don't know. It's really I don't weird. Know. <laughs> Maybe that's why, because they're saying Handel, so it has to be Purcell. I don't know. Anyway, I've always said Purcell, and I still hear people say it, so <laughs> I'll keep doing it. Anyway, it kind of reminded me a little bit of the, the water music, sort of, oh, here. Right, right. Uh, the tempo, I haven't heard that in years either. I'll have to, <laughs> there's a new recording of it, too. Maybe we should do that. Anyway, the tempo is on the slow side here, and the reverb is very noticeable, but uh, detail registers well. And I'm picking up the harpsichord clearly here. I like the way the rhythmic contours are clearly etched. I could say that about the entire album. Okay, by the way, this second movement, Adagio, I heard a lot of Purcell in this one. Hmm. If you know the uh, aria, Hush No More from uh, The Fairy Queen, this kind of reminded me a bit of that. It actually sounded like it was lifted a bit from that opera, at least the uh, opening does. Uh, The tempo is on the slow side for an Adagio, or for the way an Adagio is played. Third movement as an air. It's kind of slowish too. And I want to mention at this point that a lot of the tempos on this album are on the slower side. And I think part of the reason is because we have such a a fairly large ensemble, I guess, for a Baroque ensemble. The rhythms are really strong, but the tempos are... We don't really get that bubbly sort of uh, feeling that we get from a lot of um, Baroque playing. And I think this is intentional on this record. And probably, I was thinking, this record could have easily fit on a single CD if the tempos were a little faster. <laughs> but uh, that's the way it went. This is I wonder why they did that. They'll probably let us know, actually. But I did notice that there, was sl- there are slow mm. tempos in these works. Um, downbeats are accented enough to make the rhythm stand out. The fourth movement, Sarabanda, flowing rhythm. As the string patterns string out uh, spaghetti-like from their starting point, they kind of interweave. I really like that. All reaching their cadence together at the end. Nice effect. The dance rhythm is lighter here, but identifiable. Uh, No vibrato on the string sound, although the string sound itself is very rich. And I'm getting the harpsichord disappearing into the texture uh, here from my Bluetooth listening. Anyway. Fifth movement, Allegro, has a dancey spring-like rhythm, and this is a highly appealing movement. So very nice from Nicola mm. Mateus the Younger. Okay, tracks 12 through 16 are Antonio Caldara and Nicola Mateus the Younger, Overture, and L'Ultimo Balletto to La Verità dell'Inganno, which I guess is the name of the opera, La Verità dell'Inganno. And what happened here is um, Antonio Caldara wrote the overture, and whenever there's a ballet, and he, he wrote the opera too, but there's there was often a ballet section in Baroque operas, and he'd have another composer write that. I guess it's sort of like in mm. the uh, the French kitchen where the chef is doing all the uh, supervising, and then there's somebody who's in charge of the sauce or something. So I guess um, Matthias the Younger, in a way, was in charge of the sauce. <laughs> anyway, right. the overture by Antonio Caldara, has an opening, winding, intertwining string lines, and they really caught my ear. I really like uh, Caldara's uh, composing. Mm. 
they're played the largo as in an introduction and have a slight French overture rhythm to them. At 132, the presto section starts. It's on the slow side, but the rhythm is so lively that it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really take off as these sections tend to do. You usually get some kind of liftoff from the time the fugue section starts, but we get really a really accented rhythm here. And uh, with the tempo, we get to focus on the intertwining lines of the fugal texture. Then we get to the um, Matthias the Younger composed um, material, L'Ultimo Balletto. First one is called Aria per Limascari. It has a repetitive pattern. It's sort of typical of a ballet movement, really. It's on the slow side with a lively rhythm. Then the uh, third movement is Aria per Li Sultani. Light open fifths in the bass provide the exoticism of the Sultan's dance. All right, those uh, droning fifths sound exotic. Like the uh, <laughs> the Middle East, I guess, in mm. this time. Otherwise, this has some interval leaps in the strings, and there's a continuo that sounds like a guitar or other string instrument. Fourth movement, Adia. This uh, brief movement has a compact theme that's repeated several times. The middle section is a bit more thinly orchestrated. And then the fifth movement, Tempo di Chacona, quick dotted rhythm to the theme. All right, and that's the end of uh, Nicola Mateus the Younger and the end of uh, CD1. CD2 has uh, different composers entirely. Tracks 17 through 19, these would be uh, 1 through 3 on CD2 if you mm. have the CD. Antonio Vivaldi, our good friend. Violin Concerto 2 in E minor, RV 277. Il Favorito, which is a pretty well-known violin concerto. This is from his Opus 11 set. So we usually expect a Vivaldi work to be lightly scored and really racing in the beginning, but we don't get that here. The tempo is slower than we've become accustomed to over the last... 40 plus years or so <laughs> since the uh, period instrument uh, thing began they really sped up tempos I guess to keep the uh, the lines more legato because it was harder I guess then to um, play you know long legato hmm. lines like modern orchestra strings could back in the day now they know how to do it I think uh, the solo violin almost sounds like part of the ensemble this is Adrian Chandler playing he matches them in timbre and in the vibratoless approach too. So because he's vibratoless, he doesn't have that bright, and I think he's using gut strings here as well. So he doesn't really stand out from the ensemble. The movement unfolds pleasingly. This is a pretty cool chord progression at around 320, leading to the cadence. Now, when I say that Chandler doesn't stand out from the ensemble, I mean he's not placed in any kind of spotlight. He sounds like he's standing like among the group, and his line just happens to be the solo line, so you just focus on it as part of the entire um, the writing. Anyway, second movement, Andante, has a slow pulse, again, a bit on the slow side. The solo instrument also doesn't stand out in timbre, having a lot in common with the string sound produced by the ensemble. It's the violin writing in comparison to the ensemble that's on display here, and not the soloist himself in this performance. The pulsing rhythm keeps up throughout, really making itself felt and heard. And in the third uh, movement, Allegro, it sounds a bit like a heavy, slowly played jig. There's something insistent about it, the way it's played here. And the violin uh, enters imperceptibly at uh, just after the 32nd mark. And then the ensemble clears a space for it to be heard in, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, the violin figuration at 141 is low-key, but impressive as always. How can it not be? It's such a... Uh, florid writing. It gets more melodic afterwards, and there's a quick key change at around the two-minute mark that stood out for its pleasing oddness. I like the violin's figuration at 245 and after, those downward patterns with a heavy accent on the rhythm. 
The violin solo stands out most strongly in this movement, and there's a lot of space left for it. And I think that's Vivaldi's doing. Okay, tracks 20 through 30 were actually my uh, favorite piece on the album. Mm. Giuseppe Antonio Brescianello, Overture Suite for Strings and Basso Continuo. Brescianello has figured on previous La Serenissima albums, and I think I've only heard his music played by them, so I know it Interesting. Mm. Uh, from them. And uh, this particular piece, I don't know, for some reason stood out for me, maybe because of its length, but also because, well, let's get into it. I'll tell you why. Movement one, Largo, going to Fuga, so this would be sort of like a introduction into a fugue. There's a proper French overture here, and the tempo is pretty normal. Now, this is, I think, why this stood out for me, because the tempo is uh, a little quicker in this work than it has been on the album so far. It doesn't sound slow here. There's a strong sense of the downbeat and the thickness of tone in the ensemble. It sounds lighter than the rest of the program. Uh, the fugue starts at uh, 125. This is on the slow side, but has movement in its progress. And we've got that room reverb sounding strongly here. Everything is crystal clear, though, with each melodic line dancing. The fugue has a nice flow to it. It feels comfortable. Uh, nice, full, rich tone on the final chord. The second movement, there are 10 movements, or there are 11 movements, I'm sorry, in this work, is an aria. And he actually labels a lot of these movements aria, which I guess would be an operatic song. It has a strong rhythm to it. It's positive and sunny sounding. The strings playing what would sound like a fanfare if it were brass, at least to my ears. There are contrasting quiet sections, and I liked these for their understatedness and clarity. It ends rather softly on a cadence. The third movement, Adagio, is slower, with a clear melodic contour standing out from the accompanying strings. There's a gentle flow to it. The fourth movement, Hornpipe, has a strong rhythm with a vivaciously played melodic line. Fifth movement, Boré, the rhythm is still strongly laid out, and I like the amiable violin melody in this with the quick bowing of the accompaniment. Sixth movement is another aria, labeled Adagio, another amiable melody, resolving quickly to the cadence, song-like in its nature. Movement seven is an aria again, has a vivacious dance quality to it, which reminded me of Purcell and Handel. If you know um, Handel's um, Ode to St. Cecilia, there's a an aria in that that goes the double 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 beat of the thundering drum and this um movement uses that rhythm and just kind of pulled me right back to that work. Hmm. Uh, it's a melody over a strong rhythm. The eighth movement is an aria, a slow tempo with a touching melody and light ripples in the more pinpointed continuo. This flows like a billowing sail caught in a breeze. Ninth movement, man, there are a lot of movements here, and they're not all like one minute either. So some of the, none of them are long, but they're not. Some of them take their time. Aria, dancey, high-stepping rhythm, and the melody falls into the rhythm and is rather square in shape, but appealing nevertheless. Tenth movement, aria has an odd melody with a quick note followed by two sustained quarter notes. Um, the movement retains the melodic shape throughout, with melodic additions to the opening rhythm, and we end uh, with a jig which is a bouncing jig played with bounce and verve by the ensemble. The rhythm, as throughout the album, is strongly felt and adds a lot of appeal to this track. We end with track 31, Brescianello again, a chacon, in A major for strings and continuo, as we began with the Purcell chacon right. 87 minutes earlier. Um, this moves at a mid-tempo pace. Once the bass drops out for the first variation, we have only the scoring for high strings, and they seem to float above the ground with their light, orchestration. 
At 148, there's a flowing variation moving at a good pace. The orchestration thins for the lighter variation that follows. And from here, um, the two minute, 10 second mark, they keep coming in shortened form when the texture suddenly changes to finish the line. It ends satisfyingly on a more sustained set of ending chords. Okay, so after this, what do I have to say about this? I guess the performances are commendably rhythm focused as it should be in a dance movement. I really would have liked more variety of tone on the recording. It's all strings, really, with the harpsichord. And I think I'm always kind of comparing them because my favorite La Serenissima album is, of course, um, uh, Settecento, the one with the, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, the Vespa on the cover. We really liked that one. But that one had a recorder on it, so there's a lot more mm. variety for that reason. And it was only, I think, four or five players from La Serenissima. This one sounds like it has more. I haven't really checked the booklet to find out, though. Anyway, each track sounds thickly layered with strings with rich room ambience. The ensemble goes for a grand style in all of these pieces. And for me, it's a period instrument recording with a large number of players that leans toward pre-period instrument tempos. Because I remember one of the exciting things about Baroque music in the 80s and the period instruments was that the tempo suddenly had a lot of life to them. They used to be very slow, mm. if you remember... Um, the uh, now unlistenable uh, recordings of the Mormon <laughs> Tabernacle Choir singing Messiah, yeah, this giant ensemble, and playing this at like a you know brontosaurus walking pace. You know, <laughs> I'm not saying that about this album. It's just it's moving more slowly than we've been hearing recently. It's not anywhere near that you know mm. pre-period instrument tempo. Okay, so I'm just wondering what was going on with that decision. Why did they decide on these? slower tempos. It might have just been the room ambience that made them uh, go that way, or the uh, size of the ensemble. Um, La Saninissima finds different ways to approach the works on all of their recordings. This recording clocks in at 87 minutes, and as I said, I think it could have fit on one CD with faster tempos, which would have required a smaller ensemble, and I'm guessing that bigger sound was what they were going for here. It's an enjoyable album. I really liked it a lot, and not only because of all the music is new to my ears, in the La Sarnissima catalog, I have other recordings that I prefer. I'm still a big fan, as I said, of Settecento. But uh, this one, again, is it's all new music to me and something to uh, add to the growing collection of La Sarnissima records. I feel like, um, I think what I want to say is I feel like La Sarnissima are telling me uh, Baroque music doesn't have to be played lightly and at breakneck speed. And I agree. But I like it that way. <laughs> I think I want to hear it. I, I, I still enjoy that. I haven't gotten tired of the uh, the long, mm. the faster speeds. I actually don't like breakneck speed, but I do like the chirpy, sprightly right. kind of uh, rhythm. Uh, these are all excellently executed performances, and if you prefer that mastering sound, you should hear this. It is very good. Yeah, I didn't find any of the content on this particularly outstanding to me, although I enjoyed all of it. Yeah. As you say, I was more attracted to some of the pieces on their other releases. Right, me but too. But I did yeah. enjoy, and I always do, the energy and enthusiasm that oh, they always have that, yeah. has for the works they choose to record. And mm. I thought it comes through in really polished performances on this recording as well. I really like the tonal quality and the blend of the strings, which is a combination of their equipment and the way they play and the recording quality. I, saw, I think it sounds very burnished and mm -hmm. uh, pleasing. And I thought the slower tempos here really enabled them to focus on the phrasing, which mm -hmm. I found very enjoyable. 
and the overall interpretations. I didn't feel anything was rushed. I felt it was very settled in, and I felt the tempo, and probably also being familiar with the music and well-rehearsed, shows a kind of confidence in the interpretations as well. Even though the music was largely unfamiliar to me, I felt I was listening to a confident rendition of it. Hmm. And I enjoyed it. And I actually spent a whole morning and went straight through right. the whole eight minutes and listened to it and had a really good time. I actually broke it up this week. I had, Either way, I had a few if listens, you like Baroque yeah. music, their performances are always polished. And yeah, this is a uh, interesting collection of music as well. You know, we, we at the uh, Adult Music Podcast highly, strongly recommend Settecento by La Serenissima. That's a great one. Yeah. That's a good one. It's got a Vespa, a red Vespa on the cover. <laughs> and it's really, really interesting. Lots of unknown Baroque music on that one, too, as on all yes. of them. Mm. Yeah, I also want to mention to listeners, um, always listen to music, any kind of music, really, but especially classical jazz, at CD quality at worst. and <laughs> Go up from there. <laughs> Once you get into lower sampling rates, certain instruments start dropping out of the recording because they're not, in order to, for them to register, they have to be sampled, I guess, at a certain rate. And I felt like I might have been losing some of the harpsichord on this recording because I listened to it on uh, Bluetooth, which is does not get CD quality. It's a little less. There's a new Bluetooth encoding that is approaching CD quality, but you have yeah. to have uh, you know the latest equipment to get that too, and on both yeah. ends of the signal oh, chain. Boy. So, so how many thousand dollars is that going to be? <laughs> but I mean, I think Bluetooth is actually quite fine if you're in a you know, a mobile environment. I use yeah. it if I want to listen when I'm out on my phone or something, right. but I, would, yeah. I wouldn't I would use it at, at home for a serious listen. So Yeah, when you want to hear like detail. Detail. That's really what gets me into classical music. People often ask, what is it about classical music that you like? Well, again, it's the details. It's the, the little kind of, this this these little elements that are kind of supporting the, the main right. line and stuff that'll often pull you in. And you'll say like, wow, you know, it's just, what a great sound. Speaking of details... Our next recording on the classical oh, yeah. music is one of my favorite composers ever, a work that really lifted mm. me up once uh, long ago in a time of deep despair. So if you're in that state now, you might want to hear this. This is Carl Nielsen, Danish composer from the early 20th century. Uh, we hear his violin concerto and one of my favorite works of all time, Symphony Number no. 4 by Carl Nielsen, nicknamed The Inextinguishable. Mm. That's the English translation of the Danish title. And uh, for the violin concerto, we have James Ennis on the violin uh, with that gorgeous, sweet tone of his. He's he's a British violinist. And the uh, Bergen Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Edward Gardner. This is on the Chandos label, British label, and it's an SACD. And I have the SACD of this. So I'm hearing this oh. in 96 kilohertz sampling, which is really very clean sounding. It, I, I really like this uh, sampling rate for, uh, especially for an orchestra. A lot of detail gets involved, and I also have a five-channel stereo in my house too, so I can listen to the five channels. Gives you more of a sense of space, and that's mm. especially good on a on an orchestra recording. By the way, if you're a, if you're one of these people who likes like surround sound, the best surround sound recordings. I'll give you a little tip: are organ recordings. Because it's like you're in a church and the sound is just coming from everywhere. It's just fantastic. <laughs> How many channels are they up to now, like in surround sound, these well, uh, latest ones? A lot of the, uh, the the regular ones, because of the Dolby Atmos 
Oh, it's okay. at least seven channels, but could be up in the 20s. I don't oh, know who geez. has 20 speakers in their house. <laughs> I don't want 20 speakers in my house. This is crazy. I, my house isn't a movie theater. I, only I don't want ears. seven speakers in my house. <laughs> yeah. No, but the, the back speakers are usually just some sort of ambient sound. Yeah, and it right. gives a sense of dimensionality. Um, if you have a rock recording, though, a lot of times they'll send you know certain instrumental sounds to those back channels. So you're you know like Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. You okay. get those kind of like trippy effects and things like that but classical recordings are just kind of like that it's just the sense of space it gives right. you that's really nice but now they have like seven channels for like movies so that like if somebody shoots a missile it sounds like it's going by <laughs> you that's the only purpose i think those uh, middle speakers serve i just didn't want that i could have bought a stereo that had that but i said nah, i'll go for the older one with the five channel because i just like the um the whole idea right. of a super audio cd that was the model back then and it's still the model for music Anything bigger is just really going to be for movies. And I'm not, I'm interested in movies, but not that interested you know, that I have to have the sound. You want the picture for a movie, you know? Anyway, let's get back to Carl Nielsen. So this program duplicates the only concert Nielsen conducted in London. This is pretty interesting. Ernest Newman, critic for The Guardian at the time, was not impressed. Oh, if oh. I were around at the time, I would have had some things to say about him. <laughs> Anyway, he wrote that Nielsen's music, and I quote, seems to be mostly a collection of jottings from a notebook. Can you believe these people? Man, these are generally very good in themselves, but lack a genuine connective tissue. Okay, I get it. All right. So Nielsen is changing music, and this guy isn't happy about it. All right. Um, everything has to be of a piece, but the world is changing, and artists are the first ones to kind of sense that, and it comes out in their art. It lacks genuine connective tissue. This criticism turns out not to be completely wrong. Indeed, Nielsen made no attempt to ground his material in a connective tissue, as the music of the past had done. Instead, diverse themes and materials converse with one another from their separate stations. Nielsen was aware that such homogeneity belonged to a departing world. He was also aware that music now would have to be brisk, abrupt, and emphatic, to make up for the loss. Very interesting. Mm. At the same time, the loosening of unity made possible a diversity of references to different epochs and sources, older styles, folk music, which we heard in a lot of uh, right. modernist music. This is probably why this music sounds so appealing today. Uh, it speaks more to our time than it did to the time it was composed in. Just think of the things I just said and think of the world we live in. Perhaps because people weren't yet accepting that old ways were on the way out. And after World War II, they were just swept away dramatically. And we had um, something entirely new. Anyway, um, Nielsen's music really stands up today. And I want to encourage listeners to hear it um, mm. if you've never heard it before. Especially this album would be a good place to look. The first um, work, Concerto for Violin and Orchestra, though the piece is presented in two big movements, it could also be thought of as three movements. This is one of the ways in which it gives convention a twist. The first two tracks could be thought of as a first movement with a slow introduction, followed by a proper slow movement, track three, that leads to a finale, track four. But Nielsen labeled this as a two-track work because he wants us to hear this as two similarly proportioned panels, each having a slow, fast tempo. So think about that. It could fit into a more traditional guise, and um, he wants this to be heard as two similarly proportioned panels. Mm. By the way, his Fifth Symphony does this as well, and it's, it's far more complicated than, than this work is. Okay, so we start out with the first movement, uh, track one, uh, movement one, preludium, 
Preludium would indicate that this is an introduction. The introduction has an introduction of its own. This is according to the booklet notes in the form of a passage in which the soloist warms up. It kind of sounds like he's a folk fiddle player. He's playing all these double stops when he comes in, but it's on a level of classical elegance. The rougher origins delicately reinforced by the drone from horns and bassoons on G, which turn to the fifth G to D. The music slows. The violin is conveyed magically upwards to rest on a G as the harmony swivels from minor to major. I always like that effect. You have this minor and then suddenly that one note changes and it just kind of sounds like mm. there's this sunlight coming in. It's really incredible how that can happen with changing only one, <laughs> one note of a chord. Anyway, we expect the fast music to begin here, but we get a slow consideration of a rocking idea that had begun to emerge just before this turning point. And the faster, wilder material that intervenes is remembered as the music slows and turns back to its rocking motif. Uh, the violin moves to a high D. The note is held over to the next section at the end. This recording has full, spacious sound on its uh, surround um, track. The violin registers beautifully in its own space. And of course, we get Ennis's beautiful, I always think of the sound as nougaty. It sounds very sweet, <laughs> you know, it's going to stick with you. And it suits this music particularly well. Uh, the minor to major change, by the way, comes at 1 minute and 24 seconds on track 1, if you want to you know, really be ready for that magical moment. And the violin plays its line lightly with a floating quality to the tone. We hear the rocking idea in the accompaniment's dotted rhythm as the violin continues to solo. That's at uh, 2.26. You can hear it clearly there. You actually hear it before that. But check 2.26 for the... Uh, rocking back and forth sort of um, sound, after which the violin imitates it. At 3.09, the material gets more emphatic. The violin solos at high speed. At 4.08, the rocking material is back. At 5.22, the opening major idea comes back and settles beautifully on its tonic. Then we get the move up to D, and then we're in the uh, second half of the first movement, the Allegro Cavalleresco. This is track two on the recording. And that violin note is almost drowned out by the Allegro Cavalleresco, um, which Cavalleresco means um, chivalric, which is an unusual term for music. And here must be used from the music's sense of olden times. So think of knights, I guess. The full orchestra silences the solo violin with its tune that could well suggest knights on horseback. The violin is given a chance at the theme, and uh, the notes say it half satirizes this theme. Eh, it pretty much sticks to it, but it does stretch it a bit, especially more at the end of this movement. Another unprepared switch comes soon enough to gentler music featuring the woodwinds. Uh, the music keeps up despite a pecking at repeated notes, which is going to be another big uh, Nielsen motif. You'll hear it a lot in the fourth symphony, and I'll indicate that when we get to that. Through the cadenza. Now, both kinds of music, the chivalric and the uh, gentler, are then brought back. Uh, their differences not smoothed out. This is very modern work in this case, in modernist work, let's say. Um, the opening theme marches out confidently. The violin repeats it. We hear a rapid dotted rhythm at 52 seconds. And at a minute 18, the unprepared switch to the woodwind comes. And this is where the violin is at its sweetest. Ennis having the perfect tone and sense of legato for this section. At 2.35, the full orchestra comes in fortissimo, filling the soundstage. The quiet section at 3.26 features those repeated notes that remind me of the Fourth Symphony. If you know the Fourth Symphony, you'll notice this right away, actually. 
And the fourth symphony came five years after this piece. And this plays beautifully through the whole section. At 536, the cadenza begins in earnest, though Ennis had been leading up to it beforehand with his figuration as the winds played gorgeously sounding chords. It's an athletic, rather aggressive cadenza. At 636, it plays the slow theme languorously. At 8.07, the winds come back in as the violin ends his cadenza with a wheeling figure. Then the bold cavalleresco theme comes back in the full orchestra, with the violin peeking in and repeating it with some excursions into his high end. At 9.26, and in intervals afterwards, we hear those rapid repeating notes in the orchestra, which the violin picks up and plays with. At 10.35, the violin plays a faster, more teasing version of the cavalleresco theme. So I guess here's the humor that the uh, notes talked about. And then moves into rapid figuration as the movement heads toward its end, which is big and bold, with some interesting harmonies on the approach to its final chord. Okay, the third track begins the second movement in this violin concerto that has two movements. This one's labeled Poco Adagio, and uh, Woodwind and Violin open this movement. And the music's defining image, this is the notes, is a faltering step down a semitone and back again in dotted rhythm. The alternative theme also contains dotted rhythms and hesitancy. When the earlier music has been reestablished and settled, the violin takes the lead into the rondo finale at the end. The, the winds play a theme with a repeating curling end. That's the uh, what they're talking about when they talk about the semitone and back again in dotted rhythm. It's lulling to the senses. Uh, the violin comes in playing lyrically and settling on that repeated semitone phrase, ending at the 58 second mark, adding a bit of variety to it. The violin soliloquizes sweetly throughout the movement, and indeed, the semitone figure is ubiquitous. When we get to the uh, fourth track, which is the second half of the second movement, this is a rondo labeled Allegretto Scherzando. There's a lot of deliberately overplayed comedy in this section, according to the notes. Yeah, I guess I could, I wouldn't say that myself, but I guess so. In the form of the soloist leaps and the quick-fire discussion between soloist and orchestra. The cadenza goes back to a moment of drone-accompanied melody. So when they talk about comedy, what I think they mean is like the quick kind of sort of back and forth you'll get from the violin and the orchestra in an opera buffa or maybe in a screwball comedy from the 1930s. It's that kind of rhythm, which I think takes its rhythm from opera buffa, by the way. The rondo theme is easy to identify with its leaping theme. It's got a bit of a folksy quality like uh, Beethoven's violin concerto's third movement had. Uh, we can hear some of the quick-fire discussion just after the first minute. This will reappear throughout the movement. The material becomes a fanfare in the third minute, responded to by the violin with a figure that we'll hear more fully formed in the fifth symphony, which is not on this album. The violin is almost teasing when it responds to the full-scale fortissimo orchestral passages. Just before 532, there's a spectacular passage by Ennis ending on a high note. Then he starts a cadenza on the theme, which he plays broadly and then breaks down into rising figures. Something more rustic appears at 620. There are drones and a plucked tone resembling a finger cymbal giving the droning theme an exotic character. This goes away quickly, and there's a figuration ending in comical slight glissandos. At 727, the violin brings the rondo theme back, and the orchestra accompanies. This time, the section ends with a lovely high note in the violin, followed by a quick crashing orchestral chord. And that's the violin concerto. Now we get to a, a work that I just really love. Uh, Symphony Number no. 4, The Inextinguishable. If you've never heard this, 
Turn the podcast off. Go listen to it now. <laughs> it's just really spectacular. It's also very loud, I should say, which is one of the reasons, things that makes it so exciting. Anyway, the work begins uh, in media res, as uh, the um, ancient Romans used to say, which means in the middle of things. You can think of uh, Star Wars, for example. What's the first thing you see in the first Star Wars movie? You see that, uh, that little ship uh, running away from the big imperial ship that's shooting at it. So there's already a battle in progress as the... Um, the movie starts. We don't start at the beginning. And this symphony is the same. There's already a lot happening. Um, this full-on energy to the sound here. All thematic material is clearly etched over the complex accompaniment. Uh, the percussion at 45 seconds is more felt than heard. I like how clearly shaped the massed flute lines in the first minute are at a minute and 15 seconds or so. Uh, the quieter material is slower and comes across serenely, while the ending of the exposition at around the five-minute mark is warm and grand, tapering off to the wandering flute line, acting like a sentinel, preventing the repeating string line from getting to a higher key. Uh, the flute freaks out at around the six-minute and 40-second mark, waking up the rest of the orchestra. I like the metamorphosis of the serene flutes and winds in the eighth minute back to the chaos of the opening at 936. All of this is beautifully paced and well-recorded, well-rendered, and it really comes across with the power that uh, this work needs. The second movement, now actually, I'm dividing this into four movements. It's divided into four tracks, but it's really a long single movement or connected four-movement work. So it just flows from beginning to end with no pauses. The second movement is labeled A Tempo, and it's got a pastoral wind theme. And the movement acts as a respite to all of the uh, action in the work. I should mention uh, the title, The Inextinguishable, comes from... Th this work was written during World War I, and uh, Nielsen, um, sort of in a state of despair himself, I think, had mentioned that um, he had come to the conclusion that life itself was inextinguishable, and he wanted to portray that in music. So mm. during the uh, depths of... Uh, the darkness of World War One. He he wrote this piece too, as sort of a positive peen towards life itself. The movement is taken very fast, but with great clarity. The shape that the patterns fall into come in, into high relief at this speed. It's certainly not too fast and works well. Um, the pizzicato string middle sections come across delicately. I've got the volume fairly turned up for this work, and this comes across very quietly at the high volume. The third movement or section, Poco Adagio Quasi Andante, has the first string line after the extreme quiet dynamic of the second movement coming on commendably like a shriek or an outcry. It's actually a little surprising if you don't know the work. The pizzicati combining with timpani have great dimensionality and impact when we hear them, even at the softer dynamic. I've always found the string orchestration here to be really beautiful, something I want to sink myself into, and it's rapturously played here. At 2.49, once the healing string line comes in, the tempo sounds quicker. This sounds like it's played at a fast tempo. It flows nicely, though, so no complaints. I'm wondering how it will impact the last movement, though. And at 4.20, the rapture stops, and the intrusive repeated note in the winds reminds us that there's conflict. Remember, we heard repeated notes like this in the violin concerto also, which was um, composed five years earlier. Anyway, conflict is being set up between the rapture's theme and the repeating note. 
This actually goes into a fugal pattern in the fifth minute as new voices come in and start building on that repeated note. In the seventh minute, there's one last tranquil moment with a lush, rapturous theme. The setup to the fourth movement is rather held back to build up tension, and the massed strings trilling sounds great. They break into rushing string lines in the eighth minute, leading up to the big moment where we hear the beginning of the fourth movement, Allegro, a very positive theme in the strings, one that will stick in your ear the first time you hear it. It's really memorable, positive, uplifting, and really warm, too, here in its um, string orchestration. This is the theme that really ensures life is inextinguishable, and it's going to go against the forces of darkness, which we hear soon. They interfere very quickly in this movement, right after a quick fugue builds up at 49 seconds. I love all of the moving voices in this movement, and really in this piece. At 111, there's the first of several hammering timpani sections indicating open resistance and battle against the life-giving theme. The timpani are satisfyingly crashy and impactful, and the soaring string theme that quiets them just before two minutes comes across well, though the sustained notes at 222 don't quite gleam as they do in really what are now my favorite um, recordings, uh, Herbert Blomstedt. And uh, Fabio Luizzi, a recent recording that came out really this year that I also really liked. Uh, There's a long section of calm preparing for the final onslaught. Breath, by the way, register beautifully on this recording. The final onslaught is at 516, and we can hear opposing themes in the distance coming further. The timpani covering the entire tonal spectrum trying to wipe out the string's insistent repeating note. That repeating note is playing the the key that... um, the, the kind of rapturous melody is in, and it wants to establish that as the uh, the home key, which it does. At 6.11, the timpani move upward to the key of the strings wanted them in, and all is well with the world as tonality settles in at 6.45 or so to a gliding, serene theme that will ride to the end of the piece. Okay. Ennis's performance of the violin concerto got me closer to this work than I've ever been before. He has a way of doing that because his tone and phrasing are both so inviting to the ear. There's gorgeous, spacious sound on this and on the Fourth Symphony as well. As for the Fourth Symphony itself, I'd say the recent Danish National Symphony Orchestra conducted by Fabio Luizzi set takes the crown for this year, but this is excellent. Aside from Luizzi, the best fourth I've heard since the benchmark San Francisco Symphony Herbert Blomstedt conducted recording on DECA from the 1970s or 80s. It might have been the 70s. And the spaciousness of the five-channel surround makes it even better. The exciting fourth movement with its loud timpani comes across in full dimensionality. This was an enjoyable recording, one I'll certainly revisit. So as far as my fourth symphony list goes, for me the benchmark is Herbert Blomstedt on DECA with the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra. The second best is this year's um, Danish National Symphony Orchestra conducted by Fabio Luizzi. And I would say this um, Edward Gardner conducting the Bergen Philharmonic Orchestra would be my number three pick of all of them. So I heard two great fourths this year, and that makes me very happy. This is well worth hearing. It's a great program if you listen to it from beginning to end. Yeah, this was enjoyable. I like the violin concerto. I have like uh, complete Nielsen Orchestra works and yeah, it's, it's on like EMI. Ten, I know the one you're talking CD about. 10 CD collection. I don't know if it's uh, oh wow the Liverpool Orchestra or something. And so I've heard this uh, before, but I didn't enjoy it as much as this performance because of uh, the sweet violin sound here. Yeah. But what I do really like, the violin parts are rhythmic, spirited, very virtuosic. But 
Nielsen puts enough of his orchestral personality even into the concertos too. So you've got this uh, huge orchestration, all the timbres mm. are used, sweeping parts like in his symphonies, sudden key changes and lots of exciting things. So, you know, it's almost like another symphony or something to enjoy, even as far as the orchestral parts are concerned. The Symphony 4, this was interesting, very different from the Blomstedt, which is, <laughs> I just love those recordings. I've listened to them, you know, yeah. hundreds of times. That's the first one we heard. <laughs> yeah, the performance is enthusiastic, and I would say, comparatively, the tempos are rather brisk. Yes, they are. Compared to the Blomstedt. And the sound quality is completely different. Here, there's a real sense of clarity. You can hear all this detail, especially in the strings, which is really nice. In contrast, the Blomstedt is warmer and thicker in both the performance and the tone. And the brass rings more. It's more like has a greater sonority. Whereas here, the brass is just really clean. So it's very different. Uh, yeah, the Blomstedt's still my favorite, but this was an interesting and enthusiastic take, and I like the performance, and the recording makes up for what the ambiance it doesn't have in clarity, I thought. So uh, I thought it was uh, a performance. If you like Nielsen, you should definitely check this one out as well. Yeah, you definitely need to hear this piece. It's just so uplifting, oh, ultimately, yeah. and it's really exciting as well, and it'll make your neighbors hate you. Yeah, actually, just... <laughs> Unless they get into it, too. (laughs) you got to hear all six of these symphonies. You know, set aside a week and listen to one every night. And uh, it's really worth going through that cycle. They're all really unique and exciting. Yeah, we recommend the San Francisco Symphony conducted by Herbert Blomstedt on the DECA label. There's also an earlier one on EMI, which I guess would now be on what? Who owns EMI now? Is it DECA? Uh, (laughs) There are two of them on DECA. It's so confusing. But it's the later one Okay, that we like better. And then... Check out the Fabio Luisi from this year. That's pretty exciting Um, too, yeah. I want to say something about that. At the end of the year, we often have our um, our best of the year Hmm. um, recordings, and uh, we didn't cover the Luisi, and the reason why is because of the way it was released. It was kind of released on streaming first as um, three separate kind of CDs from the end of last year to the beginning of this year, and then it came out as a full CD set of all three of them. So it was just a little confusing, and plus we were, you know, working so I didn't want to like put like a six symphonies in a single week. So um, this is going to be the first time I think I'm going to have a um, best of the year that we didn't cover, like on the third part, because we have okay. a third section where we say best albums of the year that we didn't talk about on adult music. So finally, we're going to have one, one of those okay. that'll be on there because I really liked that set a lot. And I would recommend that to, to listeners if you want something new. That's um, Fabio Luisi conducting the uh, Danish uh, Symphony Orchestra on Deutsche Grammophon. All right, our third um, classical release for this week is called Jazz. Now, we're not in the jazz section of the program <laughs> yet, as you'll know if you hear this um, <laughs> this album. The composers on it are um, Sergei Akunov, who is a um, contemporary uh, Russian composer born in Kiev in 1967, so that would have been Soviet times. He's a graduate of the Kiev State Observatory, And he started as an oboe player before moving on to other genres, uh, including electronic music and rock and roll. And he made a decisive break from this style of music in 2005 to exclusively concentrate on orchestral and chamber music. Okay, the other pieces we're going to hear on this are by Poulenc and Messiaen. And the the performers are Julia, Julia, I guess, Igonina, Julia Igonina on violin, and Maxime Emelianichev on the piano, and he's playing a Bluthner piano from 1908, Hmm. which I guess was lent to him from the Piano Museum in Rybinsk. 
This is on the Aparte label. And I have to say, I'm really grateful to the composer, Sergei Akunov, for sending me the booklet notes for this album because I tried writing to the label. For, I always try writing to the label first. Right. And uh, their site wouldn't accept my message. It kept saying, you know, <laughs> something went wrong, try again later. So I kept trying for hours, you know, for a full 24-hour period. Hmm. And uh, then I wrote to Mr. Akunov and he sent me the... The not only did he send the booklet notes, but he also sent some lengthy emails where he talked yeah. about the music with me too. It was really interesting. He sounds like a good guy to get together at the uh, Yamato Ya Jazz Bar and talk about uh, <laughs> yeah. music with for a few hours. You get into a big philosophical conversation. Anyway, the first piece we hear on this record is um, Sergei Akunov's piece called Jazz. Okay, so why is it called Jazz? Well, it turns out that this is a bit nostalgic for me as well. It's inspired by the cutouts of Henri Matisse that in 1947 were collected together in a book entitled Jazz. And it's a book I, and I remember several co-eds, had in uh, university in the 1980s. It was kind of, you were cool if you had this book, you know? It was kind of, it was Matisse, you liked art, you were sophisticated, but not too sophisticated, you know? It just kind of made you urban and cool back in the day. You can see an example um, of one of these cutouts on the album cover. The art on that is called um, The Swimmer in the Tank, and Akunov has that uh, particular yeah, that's in here too. title as one of his pieces. It should be noted there is nothing jazzy either about Matisse's collages or about Akunov's composition, <laughs> so don't be misled by the title. He's taking the title from the Matisse collages, the collection of them. The titles of each movement in this work come from the titles of Matisse's cutouts, in the book, Akunov says that they seem to be begging for a musical interpretation. Uh, we should keep in mind that not only is this work not jazzy, it also has little in common with the works of Matisse and is certainly not an <laughs> illustration of his works that inspired it. So what is it? Well, <laughs> the composer says, no one should be able to find any analogies between this music and the artist's paper collages but i have to say i did find one or two and i'm very interested to hear what he's gonna have to say about this because <laughs> i know he's gonna listen uh since none were intended well there are intentions and then there's what really happens <laughs> okay sometimes um well i would think you know if yeah. something sort of subliminal or spontaneous yeah. was fostered from something as an inspiration that would be even more genuine than trying to right. actually represent something through music you know which is going to be an abstract concept anyway so yeah exactly and in fact that it is that spontaneity that actually makes it right. seem to kind of yeah. tie in with the uh the titles rather than saying oh this is um this is a this is a pain this is a cut out of birds and you have like twittering flutes or something right. you know that would be a little not interesting, let's say. Yeah, I found a few things just from the titles without right. actually looking at the artwork that uh, may have been implied right. or something. Okay, so what attracted uh, Akunov was the experimental, improvisational nature of his paper compositions. And Akunov followed Matisse's path in creating his own musical images. I guess Matisse called this collection jazz because it's improvisatory. It's just put together. Mm. We didn't know what it was going to be. So he's using the word in that sense. Matisse is said to have hesitated between calling the collection of cutouts either jazz or the circus was his other choice of title. <laughs> and Akunov says rather wryly that he's glad Matisse chose jazz because otherwise this musical composition wouldn't have existed. <laughs> you wouldn't have been attracted to the title, the circus 
and uh, probably wouldn't have composed this work anyway. And that would have been a shame because this is a really interesting work. I think I really enjoyed this a lot. Let's go through these movements. I'm going to go through each of these. There are 15 of them. And it starts with uh, Lagoon 1. There are going to be three lagoons, and one, the third one will close this uh, set. And it starts out with gentle piano notes and a violin reaching up in its harmonics, giving me the image of a cat stretching. That was kind of what I was thinking about, kind of the image I got from this. The violin line has that kind of stretched out quality. The piece is very calm, rather soothing. If I'm allowed the image of a lagoon, which <laughs> was that supposed to be thinking about? Because <laughs> this doesn't relate to the title. This is a lagoon I wouldn't mind hanging out at in the evening. In fact, the music has a dusky evening quality to it, to my mind. Track two, The Knife Thrower, has a staccato bass line with piano playing a right-hand pattern with the violin playing light double-stopped chords. They intermingle next, the piano playing a pattern in the higher end with the vibratoless, very light-toned violin commenting. I want to say something about this vibratoless violin. This became a thing in um, Baroque music, right? But the vibrato on a violin is considered to be a more contemporary thing. When I was first being exposed to contemporary Russian music in the uh, 1990s, um, there was an exchange between uh, Soviet composers, or 1980s I think it was, Russian or Soviet composers and American composers had met in Boston, and Alfred Schnitko was one of the composers. And one of the things that really struck me about his music, which I had never heard before that time, was that his, um, I think it was one of his violin sonatas, but a violin work, and it had like no vibrato in it at all, and I thought it was so unusual to hear in a contemporary composition. Now we get sort of used to it, but I, this hmm. piece, or this movement, sort of brings me back to that time. And I do wonder if it was a sort of um, non-vibrato um, of the violin was sort of a an expressive thing at the time in Russia. I wonder about that. Anyway, the attack gets heavier in both the instruments, uh, the piano playing forte and the violin digging in more. A more music box tone comes next from the piano with the violin playing lightly and vibratolessly again over it. Uh, this piece is all about, or this movement, is all about contrasting attack and timbre. Each section is brief, but all of a unifying character. Movement three, track three, the horse, the rider, and clown has a ticking pizzicati in the violin as the piano plays a rippling, circling pattern. The rhythm has a fast water wheel or gear quality to it, like a machine set in motion. I'm intrigued by the violin's light pizzicato contribution here. Igonina is in a supporting role here as the piano has the main content. At 141, there's an outburst of loud piano chords and a shrieking violin theme. At 202, Sul Ponticello playing in the violin offers complete contrast as the piano is back to its circling pattern. Interestingly, the ear goes to the violin here because its legato figuration is the new musical element. I wouldn't mind knowing if uh, Akunov has the title in mind here. I'm not getting any kind of image relating to a horse, rider, or clown. Uh, the piece ends fortissimo and energetically. <laughs> I got some images here. I thought the piano rhythm reminded me sort of a gallop kind of okay. feel. And I got the feeling when the midway through that kind of uh, drunken clown dance when it oh, okay. transforms there a little bit. But I, I guess that kind of put me into some other kind of mode. No. A strange juxtaposition of different elements musically, though. I guess that's what it is. The three different sort of characters right. and the juxtaposition of elements would be kind mm. of providing the contrast. Okay. 
Track four, forms. This is there are going to be a few of these movements labeled forms. This is a total contrast from the previous uh, movement. It has quiet, sustained chords in the violin, with the piano playing a light, rippling figure. In the first minute, the violin gets a brief solo moment in the spotlight with a vibratoless, arpeggiated line. We hear it again at the end, after 143. The violin ends the piece solo with a light, arpeggiated note. It's a nice touch. Track 5, Pierrot's Funeral. Also gentle and on the sad side, but it's light. Uh, the piano plays arpeggiated chord patterns as the violin plays a vibratoless melodic line. It's got a light sadness to it, but the actual tone color is pale and emotionless. Any emotion comes from the melody. This is one of the longer pieces in this set of what are mostly miniatures. This is, I guess this would count as a miniature too. It's just under six minutes, and it maintains its mood throughout. Uh, no contrasts. In fact, it seems to get quieter, or the violin line gets more legato as it goes. There are slight moments of crescendo and decrescendo, but they're barely perceptible. Beautiful performance by Igonina and Emel Yanichev here, really in this entire piece so far. Track six is called Toboggan. It's contrasting again, mezzo forte rising staccato lines in the solo piano. The violin is heard first in pizzicati that barely register over the piano. It then starts two note patterns that end in a more legato line that winds down and then up. Another contrast, this movement lasts less than one minute where the previous one was six minutes long. Track seven, Lagoon two, and this really marks the uh, midpoint of the work. Remember, Lagoon one was the first track. It's not all that different in mood than Lagoon one. It's almost like uh, Akunov wants to bring us back to like our sort of like haven that uh, the piece started out with. Uh, which we heard in the first movement. It's gentle, with the violin playing vibratoist, earnest lines. The piano plays a meditative melody as the violin plays pizzicato. Then the violin picks up the theme again. Beautiful final chord here that I found really satisfying. Track 8, The Nightmare of the White Elephant. It has rippling piano figuration, providing a bed for the violin line. At 1 minute and 9 seconds, I'm pretty sure we're hearing... The Elephant's Nightmare. So I think this is a direct uh, sort of <laughs> evocation, let's say, of that title. So this is what I meant when I said I heard certain elements of this. It's a very heavy-handed piano staccato bass, loudly played as the violin slashes its double-stopped material out, barely audible over the stormy piano. Then it suddenly stops, and we're back to, I guess what I'll call a continuation of the opening material. Uh, it's the same texture, but it's not the same. Uh, the Elephant's Dreams have become sweet again. I actually had like a image of this work that mm. related to the title. So there you go. Anyway, track nine. Forms two. The piano plays a quick repeated pattern that stops and is allowed to fade. The violin plays a rising sustained line over it. The piano plays a quick trill, then slower arpeggiated material as the violin continues to float above in its mid-range, playing its melody. When the violin stops, the solo piano goes back to figuration, resembling the opening, and ends the piece quietly with some pizzicato punctuation from the violin. Track 10, The Swimmer in the Tank. Uh, I want to remind listeners, this is the uh, image that's on the front cover of the uh, album. So if you look at the, um, the cover, you're seeing the Matisse cutout called The Swimmer in the Tank. Anyway, the uh, musical evocation of this is very quiet, three-note arpeggios in the piano, opening the piece. The violin plays with light bowing, vibratoless again. At 137, the violin starts sul ponticello, 
then bows at the sweet spot when playing harmonics. A lot of variation of timbre is heard from the violin in this piece. It's quiet throughout and leaves me with a sweet, summery feeling. I like the ending, a high violin harmonic, and a concluding downed ripple in a higher range of the piano. Track 11, Destiny, has bold, loud opening chords in the bass end of the piano and an echoing uh, quick uh, ta-da, ta-da rhythm uh, in the two chord patterns in the violin. After this, the piece quickly quietens and the violin plays a sweet melody with vibrato, making the tone stand out from the rest of the works here as the piano accompanies with an arpeggiated bed. Yeah, that vibrato in the in the violin really came as a surprise to me. I really wasn't expecting it. And here you are on track 11 hearing it, although Akunov really is um, exploring a lot of the timbres that the violin is capable of in this. And now we've finally gotten to vibrato. Uh, there's a pause and the opening booming chords come back. The bombastic pattern melts into a lullaby pattern again, and the sweet vibrato-laden violin melody is extended to the end this time. Track 12, Flight of Icarus. This starts uh, with the violin playing Sul Ponticello on the bridge. It's got a haunting sound uh, on the violin's solo opening. The piano responds with a rippling, circling, arpeggiated chord. The violin moves away from the bridge and plays double-bowed notes in its melody. There is a sort of sense of tentative flying in this texture, and this continues throughout the movement. It sounds like Icarus disappears into the stratosphere. We've lost him from view uh, in the ending rising pattern in the violin, so we miss his fall to earth completely. <laughs> this doesn't happen in this work. Anyway, track 13, Destiny 2. Solid piano chords start the piece. The violin plays a melody, then a birdsong-like pattern is heard in the piano. There's a further bit of melody, then a crisis is suddenly reached as the piano chords suddenly get louder and the violin responds passionately. This happens twice and is suddenly pulled back to the opening piano dynamic. At the end, there's another fortissimo crisis reached and the piece ends with that, segueing directly into the next track. For track 14, The Heart. This continues with a piano line with a few emphatic chords opening. The violin comes in, again legato. It's found a deeper voice as the movements have gone on. The violin is melodic here with rippling accompaniment in the piano. And I should mention this rippling is the same effect with different patterns each time we hear it in these various compositions. The violin line comes across as rather passionate and deep in feeling. It's a lovely modernist sounding piece with a moving melody. And I'm guessing that has something to do with the heart, the... Um, passionateness of the violin tone. Track 15, we're back to our Lagoon, Lagoon 3. This has the same profile as the other two Lagoon pieces. It's very calm. There's a little vibrato in the violin line now, but it spends a lot of time in high harmonics. I do like the sort of discontinuity of the ideas in the three Lagoon pieces, as though the mind is on one subject of contemplation and suddenly finds another in the calm space. A lovely ending to a really memorable composition that I'll be listening to again. Hey, anyway, let's go on to the rest of the program here. We get next uh, Francis Poulenc's Violin Sonata, FP119. The violin part here uses gut strings in this and the Messiaen work. The first movement, Allegro con Fuoco, starts wildly and forte with a reaching violin line and a quick loud staccato chord in the piano. 
The piano line races throughout, sometimes arpeggiating a bed for the equally distraught violin line, sometimes going off on its own. At 59 seconds, the second theme is heard. It's more gentle, but only in this context. It doesn't last long. The distraught opening profile comes back. At 1.30, there's a calmer section. The duo here are very expressive, emphasizing dynamic contrasts especially, as in the second minute when the louder material comes back. At 3.10, this tires itself out and a quieter section ensues, but the embers of this fire are constantly stirred up like a passionate thought that can't stay subdued and keeps rising up. The distraught music rises up again as we head to the end, and the approach to the cadence has a dance of death quality to it in its unstoppability, though it does interrupt itself for a banal-sounding dance melody that it rides to a rumbling end in the bass end of the piano, with a loud pizzicato theme from the violin ending the piece. Sorry, not a loud theme, a loud pizzicato from the violin ending the piece. Highly expressively played. The uh, duo are really on top of every element of this very chaotic <laughs> score. The second movement, intermezzo, starts with um, chiming chords in the piano. If you know um, Franz Liszt's um, La Campanella, how it starts with those octaves, it's that sort of sound. There are a lot of repeated chord patterns in the uh, line of chords. The violin comes in in its lower end and plays melodically. The piano sounds the more insistent part in this movement. The violin and piano eventually join up with the violin agreeing to the piano's rhythmic pattern at 2.45 or so. There's a surge of feeling at around 3.55 as the duo crescendo to a climax. Everything quietens after that, leading to a pause at 4.31, leaving the piano to open with its modal sounding chord pattern, which the violin now plays double-stopped over. Third movement, Presto Tragico, has quick rhythmic figures with heavy downbeats. The duo alternate in playing the thematic material, with both in motor rhythm. It's an impressive feat of virtuosity on the part of both musicians here. There's an identifiable popular sounding melody just after the one minute mark that adds a bit of affability to this overall dark sounding movement. When it comes back in the second minute, it becomes manic, played with quick pizzicati in the violin. The music is pulled in all directions with sudden changes to its direction and some aggressive pounding in the piano in the third minute. The violin line kept my attention throughout through Julia Igonina's ear-catching phrasing as well as the quality of the composed material. There's sort of a resigned section in the fourth minute that seems to end in despair, uh, followed by a leap in what seems like a final chord, but there's a surprise final sound in the piano at the very end. And we end with a movement from Messiaen's Quartet for the End of Time. This is called Louange à l'Immortalité de Jésus. And that means um, praise for the immortality of Jesus. It's the last movement of the work. This piece has a clear reference in all of its parts. The piano line's rhythm is a heartbeat. It just plays dun-dun for all of its chords as it rises through its um, range. The violin line spirals higher, it moves around a bit, until the movement ends in ecstasy and heaven. There's beautiful melodizing by the violin throughout, and Igonina has the measure of this work, and on her gut strings it sounds really great too. It's got a slow crescendo throughout its seven minutes, paced beautifully, reaching a calm at its midpoint that builds slowly to the ecstasy of the final stratospheric violin line and the beating high piano chords. Igonina's tone is captivating throughout. Those gut strings bring a nice textured sound to the tone. 
This is a really captivating program whose interest doesn't stop with the Akunov piece. Akunov himself is Russian, but for me, the timbre variety stood out in this piece, and that makes it sound a bit French to me. Although I did mention the um, vibratoless violin playing, and that sort of reminded me of late 20th century Russian music that we heard in the United States at the time. It was um, Schnitka and also Shchedrin was there too at the time. They were the two famous Russian composers. There were others as well. It's got a lot of that wan, vibratoless violin tone, and I was wondering uh, if that vibratoless tone was something expressive to Russian composers from that time to now. Uh, the piece is mostly gentle and leaves a serene feeling once it's over, especially due to the presence of the three lagoon pieces. Uh, the Poulong piece is played with gripping intensity by the duo, and the Messiaen is heartfelt and in some ways recalls the opening Akunov piece in its timbres, so it fits well with the program. It was a really interesting choice to conclude the program with that. All in all, I was captivated by this album throughout. The Akunov piece may come across as being lighter than the rest of the program, but it's got real content that involved me throughout. I'd recommend hearing the entire program straight through. It's an ideal classical music program for our contemporary time. I thought this was a very synergistic duo. They Ooh. sort of meld together nicely, very sensitive mm. and expressive performances all around. Of course, I was most interested in the Akhanov composition as a contemporary work. Very compelling, episodic short pieces, all with very different characters and transformations. They kind of draw you in two different little worlds, just as a painting would, you know, even if they don't represent what is in the Matisse cutouts there, their own little worlds in each little movement. And what I found also interesting about them is the instrumental balance is very equal between the piano and violin. So the piano is not accompanying the violin. They're both integral and balanced elements in those works. And that just made me want to hear more of Akhanov's music. I'd like to hear other things he's done. It would be interesting to hear something that he does for orchestra or a larger scale work with more development uh, and continuity. So yeah, if we can find some more of his classical compositions, uh, let's uh, take a listen. Yeah, they're out there. I was reading about a few of them. I really should right. uh, check and see if they have them uploaded. I'll, I'll look for them. Yeah. We'll see what happens. I'm game. All right, let's go. Let's check it out. All right. All right, changing the game over to the jazz side. This week, we're going to focus on ensembles, and we're going to grow them larger as we go through <laughs> the program. And we're going to get some great arranging on the way. And the first recording is by pianist Matt Carter over in the UK. This is on Ubuntu, Quentin Collins' label. Read Between the Lines. This is an octet recording. It came out on July 21st. Hmm. Well, Matt Carter grew up in Exeter, England, started playing piano at the age of seven, studied jazz piano at the Royal Academy of Music in London, and he just graduated in 2021. So he's a young fellow. During the time he was there, he was also involved in a big band project with Chris Potter and Dave Holland, and he had another big band project playing the music of Steely Dan. It'd be kind of interesting to check out. Yeah. And he's performed with a lot of the UK jazz scenes, leading musicians, Gareth Lochran, Dave O'Higgins, Alan Barnes, and others. And this is his debut first studio album. And he's uh, been long 
in the making of this uh, since his band's conception. Uh, the music contains elements, this is from the notes, of many genres such as blues, bebop, and folk. Underpinning it all, however, is the group's collective joyful and rhythmic energy. And I'll agree mm -hmm. with that statement. The yes. octet is comprised of many of Matt's favorite musicians as well as close friends, most of them met whilst studying at the Royal Academy of Music and the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. So let's go through the musicians here. Matt Carter on piano, Joe Lee on bass, Luke Tomlinson on drums, George Jefford on trumpet, Tom Smith on alto sax, Harry Green on baritone sax, Johnny Ford on tenor sax, Harry Mond on trombone, and we've got a special guest. That's eight already, I guess. So we're going <laughs> to add one onto there, Gareth Lochran on the flute on several tracks. And that's a nice little addition to the sound. Yeah, I thought so too. And we've got a mix of original compositions and some other material here. So let's jump right in on track one, Sunnyside. This is Carter's original, and it fades in with sunny horn lines, indeed, and a kind of New Orleans beat, which we're going to hear more of later. Uh, the Barry Sachs stabs stick out nicely, and the horns get a little improv interplay before it fades away again in less than a minute. It's just a little appetizer for the rest of the tasty courses that are coming up. Track two, another Carter original, Abode, a funky solo piano from uh, Carter with a cool bass line to it. And then bass and drums join in with a six-beat Latin kind of groove. Saxes and flute lines swerve in and around, and after a break, the horns come in with a bluesy minor melody over the funky left-hand piano and bass lines. The flute and Harmon muted trumpet cut through on the top of the arrangement. In the next section, the sax lines spread out under the flute and trumpet. It's a fun arrangement, and you can hear more trombone as it goes on. Things thin out in the arrangement for an alto sax solo from Tom Smith over bouncy bass and drums. Nicely explorative of the harmonies and getting more gutsy as it pushes on. Getting lots of speedy licks as the horns come in with backing into a final melody section and a wispy ending of flutters over a tinkling piano. Track three, go for an old standard George Gershwin's They Can't Take That Away From Me. Yeah, great song. Yeah. Staccato horn lines bring it in over tight brushwork on Tomlinson's drums. A little break brings in trumpet and trombone on the famous melody to start, but parts switch around playfully in a skillful arrangement. Carter plays short chords to punctuate things, and Joe Lee gets a break on bass into the first solo. It's melodic and unhurried in approach with tasty little pauses. Carter's next starting out with cute ringing notes. And then Lee gets back to a chugging walk for Carter to get some gentle swinging. Bassy like horn stabs and lines push him on to more percussive and bluesy lines to a nice climax in the solo. The horns get a new swinging and more flowing arrangement. Carter gets some bouncy melody into horn ping-ponging hits to the ending. Yeah, it's a very nice playful arrangement of the tune. Track four is another Carter original fighting talk. It's a modal hard bop style tune with forward pushing horn lines. Bass and drums hit the accents for more push. Listen in the second section for cool syncopated berry sax synced with the cymbal hits. It works up to a big final section and then breaks into a hard driving swing over walking bass for Gareth Lochran to start a fierce and fluttery flute solo. Nice change-ups to Latin grooves and percussive modal chords from Carter in intense backing. The burning continues with another alto sax solo from Tom Smith. 
Uh, some nice Cuban rhythms added in from Carter underneath. It keeps going with more improvised exchanges between sax and flute. Bass and drums alone then continue for a while, and Tomlinson works around the drum kit. The horns add a line to a great fall, and Tomlinson gets on for more soloing. The horns come in with a cool stacked entrance into an even more fun melodic arrangement than we heard before with busy trombone lines, dynamic change surprises, and a big final note hit to end it. Now a nice change up, track five, a tune, High Germany, which is a traditional folk song. I looked it up, I guess this was once uh, well known throughout the UK. I don't know if young people know it anymore. Anyway, here, gentle ringing bass notes uh, together with chiming piano start this out. George Jefford's trumpet gets the melody over just the piano and bass, keeping a simple folk quality, but with a few interesting harmonies. Soft subdivided drums come in, giving more motion over piano chimes. Then Joe Lee gets a snappy bass line started, and Jefford gets a busier and more syncopated melody theme. A funky barry sax and bass line come in behind, and then a full harmonized horn arrangement builds under the trumpet. Jefford gets an improvised solo with some high-reaching ideas and a lot of motion and double-time licks. And Carter follows working lines of interval ideas into runs and percussive chords. A fun syncopated horn backing arrangement pushes him on, and the full horn arrangement gets another melody section. Then bass and left-hand piano vamp on the barry and bass line we heard before for Tomlinson to get some work around the drum kit, and the barry sax joins back in with that, and then the rest of the horns build it up to the end. Yeah, another nice arrangement, taking a lyrical folk melody and then giving it a funky transformation. Track six, Girl Talk, and this is from... Neil Hefty, the American trumpeter, composer, and arranger. You may not know who he is, but you do know his music if you know <laughs> The Odd Couple and The Batman. I won't sing that one. A TV show theme. Uh, this theme here, Girl Talk, was written for the 1965 film Harlow, a biographical film about Gene Harlow starring Carol Baker. Hmm. While on the tune, trumpet, alto, trombone, and tenor sax stack phrases to get this one started into a slow swinging horn arrangement intro. The rhythm section kicks in with some accents. Listen to the cool shifting notes before the final high hits. The horns get quiet for Carter to take the melody gently on piano. The horns are back with a nostalgic sounding melody line with cup muted trumpet and nice harmonized arrangement. I love the low berry sax line. And Tom Smith comes in with a suave, sultry, and swirly alto sax solo. And Harry Green gets a berry sax solo with some nice edge to the tone and some fun double-time licks and low honks, too. Uh, the horns build it up with a swinging arrangement and continue on with accents from Tomlinson's drums. And check out the fun bass, piano, and berry sax line to the final chiming piano chord. Back to a Carter original hope song. It's a happy and hopeful 6-8 tune, starting with just the horns on a bouncy arrangement. I like that muted trombone tone. Over to Carter on solo piano for the melody. Rising intervals hang simply while the left hand has fun rhythmic work. Bass and drums bring the horns back in. Sounds like cup mute on the trumpet. And I like how the busy sax lines are set off against the longer brass notes as it builds in volume and funkiness. It pushes through some high-volume swells into a tenor sax solo from Johnny Ford with a smooth tone and swinging rhythmic ideas. Soft, long horn lines fill it out. Then it chills out with light dancing cymbals before a reset to a bouncy horn melody arrangement. More fun bass and berry sax lines percolate underneath, 
and the ending gets drawn out into hanging trumpet notes, a tenor line from Ford, and a final trumpet descending interval with piano trickles. Track 8, Matt Carter's original Duke's Mood. Carter starts it out solo with high ringing rubato piano. There's some close harmonies, pretty and dreamy. He works delicately into the middle register, and Harry Mond comes in on trombone for a fluffy, unhurried solo melody line. It's got an old-time ballad quality with lush chords, and that gets joined by alto sax for harmonized lines. Drum brushes bring in the rest of the horns, with Smith's alto taking the lead on top. Mond gets more lines with saxes swirling around into an improvised solo. He gets a big tone in pleading phrases on the trombone, working way up high in the range. Jeffords' trumpet leads the horn melody from there to a nicely arranged ending with a final trombone line. Track 9 like it or not another carter original uh, the trio starts it out with a 16 measure melody section syncopated and swinging piano lines they go around again this time with alto sax taking the lead then things get more modally with a section of trumpet topped lines over syncopated bass and piano hits next things switch up to a latin beat for eight bars with synced berry sax and bass figures on into a really swinging full horn arrangement of the melody and the following sections again building in volume. Johnny Ford starts tenor lines underneath the horns and continues on into a solo over just the piano as the arrangement thins out. Teasing, reticent phrases become more animated over the rhythmic piano, then joined by Barry Sax, and he's off for a Barry Sax solo from Green over the trio with a pulsing walking bass. Ford joins back in underneath and then takes over again for more soloing and trades with the other sax. Huge drum hits and fills from Tomlinson power things forward as the saxes exchange and blow together. Now the rest of the horns come in to build it up to another run through a horn arranged melody to the end with final sax flurries. Like it or not, I think you'll like it. <laughs> I sure did. It's a good tune. Track 10, Read Between the Lines, the title track and also Carter's original composition. Tomlinson gets a New Orleans beat going on the drums here. Carter adds some ripples into a blues riff and then a funky left-hand line synced with the bass. The horns have a great arrangement of stabbing notes and then meandering lines with whipping end phrases working into the outer extensions of the harmonies, which sounds cool over this kind of beat. Uh, Gareth Lockman joins back in here and the flute cuts through on top of the arrangement. It's a fun, unpredictable arrangement that ends in a break for a trombone solo from Mond. He buzzes it bluesy and playfully with choppy rhythmic phrases and Lockman follows with the flute solo. It's an exciting one, bluesy, breathy, and rhythmic. Horn lines add energy behind to build up to a piano solo from Carter. It's playful, percussive, and rhythmic, locking in with Tomlinson and really hammering out the chords. The horns are back with the melody lines, getting the same build up to a big finish in that section that we heard earlier before the solo break. And that wraps it up. It's a really energetic and fun recording. Carter's originals are upbeat with good melodies. We get a happy Gershwin tune, an unexpected Neil Hefty cover, and a traditional folk song transformed as well. The variety of styles is fresh with plenty of swing, some Latin switch-ups, funky grooves, and even a taste of New Orleans. The arrangements are crafty and cool, making good use of all the voices of the octet, plus Lachlan's flute on top on three tunes. Enthusiastic solos all around, nice trombone from Mond, fiery alto playing from Tom Smith, and Carter shows a classy piano style with a good sense of swing. We'll keep an eye out for what he does next. A trio recording would be interesting too to see what he does in that format, but I hope he does more with the octet format because it's so much fun. 
Yeah, I'll certainly be keeping an eye out for uh, his next album, too. This is a pretty happening album. Yeah. Uh, when you have an octet behind you, you have a lot of timbral surprises at your disposal. And uh, I think um, he made the most of this. This very upbeat album uh, constantly surprised me. Like, for example, uh, the bass solo just after the theme. Yeah. And they can't take that away from me. I didn't think that would be the first solo, but... Uh, it just kind of really caught me. There's a flute solo just after the sudden rhythmic change and fighting talk, things like that. There are all these sort of little um, timbral surprises. After that, there's a Saxon flute solo duel. I didn't expect that either. <laughs> uh, it's an album full of unexpected timbral changes that made me smile. It was funky. It was upbeat. It was really happening. I was especially drawn to the sax's sound and energy in his solos. And I really loved the final track, which is the title track. I read between the lines. It has kind of an old-timey rhythm and a line of soloists, like everybody sort of mm -hmm. gets a chance. I always kind of like when that happens. It's a nice way to end an album. It's an exciting ending to a very satisfying album. Exciting playing by everyone, really. Uh, the performances came across as fresh, full of energy, really enthusiastic. Highly recommended, I'd say. I think this is going into the collection one day when I have money. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Ubuntu just keeps cranking out lots of great jazz from here. Yeah, the they're UK, great. So. I have a lot of Ubuntu, yeah. Ubuntu recordings in my yeah. collection. Excellent now. choices of uh, artists and taking a chance with you know up-and-coming players, and uh, they've got right. a lot to offer. All right, time for the week's <laughs> streaming rant. Oh, and, here we uh, go. This that's one, all you can uh, do about streaming is rant about yeah, it, Yeah, that's right? all you can do. This yeah. one focuses on the Sunnyside label, which is a great jazz label. We always feature their releases so yeah i just want to say i've never heard a cd rant because <laughs> there can't be to, one because well, they had great. a couple you had the uh the misplaced tracks and the oh uh, that was weird order yeah. and stuff yes, they, they never but... sent me a replacement for that either oh. they just ignored me oh. <laughs> they already had your money that was on the caroline shaw alpha recording right you know alpha label so yeah. anyway this is about the Sunnyside Independent Jazz Label. They have a lot of great recordings. We talk about their recordings all the time here. So looking at what came out this month, so on the 14th, the uh, pianist Leo Genovese had a new recording that came out. And so, you know, I looked and it didn't come out when it was supposed to come out on Deezer. I couldn't find it. And it's still not there. <laughs> and the next recording we're going to talk about uh, came out on July 21st, and it's still not on Deezer. And so, you know, okay, sometimes things take a few days to show up. And I noticed all the streaming services do this. They won't have it on the release day, but when it becomes available, they'll put it as available on the release day. <laughs> right? Okay. Well, they have to, they write the release day. Yeah, they write the release they day. Say. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. you know, most other Sunnyside releases that I've looked for, you know, have been available on the release day. So I said, what's up with these? So I looked and both of these recordings and a third that came out that I wasn't particularly interested in, they're all available on Spotify and Apple Music, but they're not on Deezer. Hmm. So I thought that's weird because Deezer has most of this, you know, these Sunnyside recordings. So first thing I did is I wrote to Sunnyside because they have a contact. I wrote to Francois. Francois, if you're listening, I'm still waiting for your reply. It's been eight days. You know, <laughs> obviously, uh, can get back to me. Well, I explained, right. you know, who we are and you know how we right. make a Deezer list for our listeners and whatnot. Right. And so then I made the mistake of writing to Deezer, and uh, you know, you won't have a problem with Deezer replying to you right away. But <laughs> that's only the beginning. 
So <laughs> I explained so to I, I often wish they wouldn't reply. <laughs> I know some of the, some of the things I get into with them. So anyway, I explained. I gave the two albums I was looking for. I asked why they weren't there, and I said who we were and why we were concerned. And then I got the boilerplate answer. You know, releases are available. You know, based yeah. on contractual and availability things, and we have no control. I said. <laughs> Tell me why they're not there. Then is why are they on other streaming and not on Deezer? You know, yeah, they use that excuse a lot. We have no yeah. control, but they do. They do. <laughs> they, they should. Or they should put, know why it was they released. Have it. They should put, have put Did, it up by now. Just tell me if Sunnyside didn't send or didn't provide the recordings, or is there a? It can't be a a regional thing because I can listen to them on you know yeah. the other services here in Japan. Quite literally, every other service too. It's not. We have a couple of back and forths, and he's like, oh. So I explained to him, you know, about the podcast and he goes, oh, let me check out the podcast. So then I get another reply. I checked and all of your episodes are available. I said, no, it's not about our episodes. It's about the recordings. <laughs> I couldn't have been more clear, but I restated everything and I sent yeah. it back again. And that was the end of the conversation. I haven't gotten a <laughs> reply about it. He didn't so. write back? No, oh, he didn't terrible. write back. So anyway, for the next recording, if you want to listen to it, it's not on the Deezer playlist, but there's... Spotify, but it's on any other playlist. If you have, uh, yeah, you know, Apple, Apple Music, Spotify, and it's maybe it'll on make it to make it to Deezer. I was just hoping it would be there in time for the episode. Right. Anyway, the next recording is by trombonist and arranger composer Alan Ferber. It's on Sunnyside. It's a nonet. So we've gone from our octet to nonet, and yeah, this is a pretty happening recording too. Exciting. I have to yeah. say, yeah. up high, down low. Official release date, July 21st. Yeah. And three-time Grammy-nominated trombonist, composer, arranger, Alan Ferber. He topped the 2022 Downbeat Rising Star Critics Poll. And since 2011, he's been an adjunct professor of jazz studies at New York University's Steinhardt School. His jigsaw for 17-piece Big Band, also on Sunnyside Records in 2017, was nominated for a 2018 Grammy Award for Best Large Jazz Ensemble. Before Jigsaw, he had Roots and Transitions. 2016, that's an eight-movement original piece for this nonette, and from which his composition Flow was nominated for a 2017 Grammy Award, Best Instrumental Composition. And his 2013 release for his big band, also on Sunnyside, March Sublime, featured original compositions and arrangements, and that was nominated for a 2014 Grammy in the Best Large Jazz Ensemble Album category. Here, Up High Down Low, is his fifth studio album for this nonet, which has been going on for 20 years. So let's go through the musicians on here. Alan Ferber, trombone, and all of the arrangements. Scott Wendelt, on trumpet and flugelhorn, John Gordon on alto saxophone, except on tracks two and eight, John Ellis, tenor sax, Chris Creek on the baritone sax, Nir Felder on guitar, David Cook, piano, organ, and keyboards, Matt Clohesy, acoustic and electric bass, Mark Ferber, that's Alan's brother on drums and percussion, and Chris Pillow, alto sax, alto flute, clarinet, and bass clarinet, and a little bit of extra percussion from Daniel Diaz. All right, the recording starts out with the title track, Up High, Down Low, Ferber's Composition. This one starts out with solo piano playing descending four-note figures. 
three sets each from alternating pitches as the idea repeats soft hi-hat gets a rhythm going to a rising horn line that brings in Ferber on the rhythmic melody line uh, as his brother gets a funky beat on the drum set. There's some conga in the mix as well. Uh, the horn line builds up with busy syncopated lines while guitar takes over the trombone line idea we heard before. Things smooth out over new held out chords and longer horn lines. And we hear the descending figures from the opening again on the piano and the changing bass notes and chords below are interesting. Has a kind of progressive rock impression to me. Uh, Ferber gets worked up into a trombone solo starting in the warm lower register. And he plays interesting syncopated lines, but with relaxed phrasing and nice melodic ideas, now working up into the higher register with backing horn lines building around. The solo continues with joining horn lines in interval figures and a long falling gliss from way up high. Then there's a drum and percussion breakdown. Bass and piano come in with a funky syncopated bass line, and Felder gets a guitar solo with an adventurous harmonic direction and spacey reverby tone. The horns add rhythmic backing lines and then continue on with building lines over the earlier chords we heard. Ferber gets some more lines of trombone improv before the final line to a dense chord. It's an interesting arrangement that kept me guessing at all times what's going to happen next in this tune. Yeah, and I'm pretty mesmerized by the fact that you could even like <laughs> to break that down like that because I was having trouble doing it. It's like, oh, what am I going to say about this? Yeah, pretty hard. But luckily, yeah. you do all the talking on this part. <laughs> on this part, yeah. Track two. Oh, we we often say we like to hear a boogaloo. Oh, I uh, love a boogaloo. Brimstone yeah. boogaloo. That's a pretty cool title. The Bandcamp notes say, originally composed for a main character in the popular video game Valorant, Ferber's hmm. Brimstone Boogaloo fleshes out the groovy sounds of Lee Morgan, Quincy Jones, and 60s heist movie soundtracks to ah, create yes. a minor blues that is at once mysterious and head-bobbing. It kind of captures a lot of the character here. Uh, it's pretty interesting. It starts with a delirious high two-handed piano figure that gets joined by a funky and bluesy bass line. There's some horn interjections with long notes, Harmon muted trumpet in there, organ joins in here too, hand percussion as well, and the bass gets a more steady funky groove going. The horn lines are really tasty with syncopated jabs setting up the groovy minor melody lines on alto flute, guitar, and buzzing Harmon muted trumpet. The next time around the horn stabs back the melody and ghostly organ floats through. There's a tense transition section with cool horn arrangement of the opening piano figure idea and the syncopated stabs into an alto flute solo from Pillow. It's very cool, relaxed, and bluesy. Wendell follows on trumpet with some Lee Morgan-esque sassy touches and the horns swell around. It kind of unwinds with falling lines after the trumpet solo into bass lines that lead to the horns playing the opening piano figure that kind of dizzying thing into a soft ending. Yeah, it's atmospheric and a lot of fun. <laughs> cool tune. Ferber's uh, original for number three, Ambling. It's a comfortable swinging tune with a jazz standard type quality to it. Trombone and guitar started out and work lines together with nice interplay of moving sax lines and trumpet taking over on the top in sections. Sounds like a 16 measure melody that's played through twice for 32 bars. And then there's a little transition and modulation to a chilled out tenor solo from John Ellis. Felder has a soft guitar chords uh, nicely done underneath that. And then Ferber follows with a trombone solo. It's swinging and melodic. 
Cook is next on piano, starting out with interval ideas and working through gently tumbling phrases. The horns come in with syncopated backing lines and then work up to another melody arrangement, and the rhythm section vamps around softly for Wendell to get some harmon-muted joyful improvisations in on trumpet. The other horns float in some easy lines to the ending. Yeah, a really good feeling, kind of relaxed tune. We're going to get a tune, The More I See You by Harry Warren and Max Gordon. It's kind of a standard. It was recorded by Chet Baker, Ella Fitzgerald, and Bing Crosby, too, as well. Hmm. Solo piano over skittering drum brushes gets things going at a brisk tempo. It's rhythmically playful and has some interesting chords. The horn arrangement on the melody is really playful and fun as well, with some interesting harmonizations and little gaps for drum hits to tap through. I really like the interaction with the bass, which switches between ringing intervals to working the lines together with the horns. John Gordon's up first for an exuberant and scoopy alto sax solo with exciting lines and a great tone. The horns build up behind and transition to a trumpet solo from Wendell with speedy licks of ideas over the fast walking bass. And Cook is next on piano with interesting chords and animated right hand lines, ticking a quote from the melody and having some modal fun too. Uh, the horns build it up and break up into a drum solo from Mark Ferber with some rapid tom work and then kick into another run around the melody from the horn section with an exciting arrangement to the end. Track five, back to Ferber's originals, uh, in hindsight, starts with just piano and guitar, sending chords that alternate with a ringing high piano note. Bass joins in and Ferber has a soft, distant trombone line before the horns join in on soft flowing lines and Cheek's berry sax gets a melody line that gets passed off to tenor sax. You can hear Pillow's bass clarinet in the backing horn lines as well. Trumpet gets the lead in a section before the horns come together on a warm arrangement and Ferber gets a trombone line in there as well. Cheek gets a soft berry sax solo over the heavy drum beat and sparse piano and guitar. Then Alice gets to trade lines on tenor sax with Cheeks Berry. The arrangement builds up to bring in Felder on a reverby guitar solo with really thick tone and uplifting melodic ideas into bluesy and rocky licks. The guitar takes it to the end with a full horn arrangement backing, a big transformation from a soft start to a rocking end on this tune. Track 6, Cherokee Louise by Joni Mitchell, uh, which you might not think is a jazzy tune, but the original did feature a sax solo by Wayne Shorter. An interesting rhythmic start. Repeated ringing piano notes get subdivided notes and octaves higher filling in notes as well. Horns add a pulse and swell up uh, with clarinet. The drums and bass jump in and the horns have an intro with trumpet interval lines on top. It settles down to a lighter beat for Ferber to take the Joni Mitchell vocal melody on trombone. He gets a really singing quality. Uh, it's singing out kind of. And then Wendell gets a turn on trumpet with a nice soaring tone. Uh, they trade more phrases with sax lines swirling below. Cook gets a rhythmic piano solo working around repeated note ideas into more running lines. And Ferber's back for an improvised solo too on trombone with melodic soaring lines. Wendell leads the horns with a high trumpet melody line into more insistently climbing solo lines from Ferber that keep pushing to the end with fun wavering tones. It gets quiet over ringing rhythmic piano octaves like at the beginning to end it. Track 7, another Ferber original, Violet Soul. This is rearranged from a compositional sketch he made in his early 20s that he had previously worked into a string quartet composition. Sparse ringing bass and guitar notes started out. 
tentative sax and flute come in, and then a louder line with trumpet on top to bring in Ferber's trombone. He floats on his own for a moment, and then the horns come in around him in lines. The guitar and bass are silent, and there are no drums. It's a nice flowing arrangement, and you can hear all the voices clearly. The Barry sax line is particularly interesting. Bass, piano, and guitar with drum brushes as well join in at about two and a half minutes for a soft backing to an alto sax solo from John Gordon, again with that great tone of his. I taste some kind of a Phil Woods influence in his sound in playing there. The horns swell around in lines that continue on to a long trill, and then the trumpet works a unison line with piano to some muted wah-wah trombone <laughs> behind from Ferber that works to a soft and warm ending. Track 8, another interesting choice of a tune to cover. Nora Jones and uh, Peter right. Rem, co-writer uh, Daybreaks. Now, if you know the original of this tune, it starts out with this kind of slow, pulsing tone. I, th I think it's the guitar. But here, Ferber <laughs> and Wendelt replicate that with Harmon mute uh, on the trumpet and trombone. Now, normally when you play a, a jazz solo, you pull the stem out. Right. There's very rarely do you get a chance to do something with the stem in, but they use that for these uh, cool wah-wah effects, which yeah, will I, continue throughout the tune. I thought this was really cool. Really, very interesting, effect, yeah. yeah. Ellis takes the vocal melody lines on tenor sax with bass clarinet lines mixing in the horn lines that swell around. It's an interesting horn arrangement, and the wahs keep on going through the arrangement. Ellis gets an improvised solo over the unique bass groove and solid drum hits from Mark Ferber. The horns build it up and then come down uh, for a softer reset for another run through the melody from Ellis with clarinet answering lines. They vamp it to the end with some more phrases from Ellis, the Wawa's returning and carrying it on to end it. It's an interesting student choice in a really unique arrangement. And we're going to end up the recording with an uh, original from Chris Cheek, Icefall. It's a 6-8 tune with a feeling of forward motion. There's an eight-measure intro, and Mark Ferber makes a drum beat with dancing cymbals to mark out the time. Electric bass on this one uh, and left-hand piano mark out the interesting chord cycle uh, that feels like it moves in four under the 6-8 division. So you get a kind of dual meter feeling there. I want to say something about that piano opening. It kind of reminded me of a sped-up um, Footsteps in the s Footprints in the Snow by Debussy, you know, that piano, solo oh, right, piano piece. Right. But if it's like, much faster. Mm. Uh, that's what it made you brought in mind. It's called Icefall, so I'm kind of wondering if there's a could be be interesting to know relationship yeah. there. Yeah, the piano right hand decorates with rising figures. Cheek comes in with the first section of melody on the Barry sax, and then it sounds like alto sax gets a phrase together with him. A fuller horn arrangement comes in after that over descending bass lines and builds up to a new section with more legato horn lines, and then gets more animated over triplet figures in the piano. The arrangement leads to Felder emerging with a guitar solo. It has an interesting variety of articulation, working in the lower register before getting some tasty bluesy-tinged licks. Cheek follows with a Barry sax solo, husky toned, but with agile phrasing, and weaving through the harmonies with interesting interval ideas. Horn lines build gradually behind him into a fuller section, and then pull back for Mark Ferber to get some drum work over the rippling piano and descending bass lines. The horn lines build up again from trombone and barry sax and then higher saxes and trumpet. And the ending section is like the intro, but with soft horn lines joining the piano figures to a long hold. 
And that wraps it up. It's a fresh sounding recording of compositions and arrangements here with a lot of variety. Forward makes excellent use of all the tones of the instruments and he keeps you surprised with the turns and transformations of all the songs. Mixed in with his originals, we get an old standard, Joni Mitchell and Nora Jones tunes. And Ferber seems to be able to meld other influences and styles of music into his jazz vision, and it works well. The horn arrangements are balanced out nicely by his own solos and an equal balance of the other horn players sharing the spotlight. I particularly enjoyed Gordon's great alto sax tone and phrasing. Creeksberry sax on the bottom fills things out nicely, and Felder's more fusion-like guitar tone adds another interesting dimension. There's a lot of things to enjoy and get your ears deep into on this recording. Yeah, right. Like uh, the Matt Carter album we heard before this one, uh, mm. this one, Alan Ferber, has a lot of timbral surprises as well. It's kind yeah. of, but they just don't occur in the same way. It's it's sort of different. Here, it's more like that you have no idea which instrument is going to solo. And there will usually be some interesting contrast between the soloist and ensemble. And I'm thinking, uh, for an example, in the baritone sax in uh, hindsight, you know, right. that, that, that was a really interesting contrast there. There's some really cool grooves, and I was especially interested in the approach where the piano would start with some ostinato theme that is often simply abandoned when the uh, <laughs> main theme yeah, comes yeah. in. I was kind of wondering about that. Uh, in Brimstone Boogaloo, the piano's opening theme actually does become part of the ending of the track, but not in the other tracks when the piano opens the track sort of in a classical style. Mm. And then you get this jazz groove come in and the, the, the opening just seems to be completely forgotten. Right. Um, there's a lot of variety on the album. All of it's appealing. And all of it has an excellent clear sound. Yeah, it does. Yeah, The drums register fully as though with multiple mics, miking them sort of like on a rock recording. This is a really nice discovery, and I think I might want this one too. I'll play them back-to-back. This is kind of a good back-to-back sort of uh, yeah. program to listen to. Really good arranging, and mm. I really think you know this kind of medium-sized ensemble, you can do a lot with it. It, it can yeah. sound a lot bigger than it actually is yeah. with that many horns, and you can get all these different tones and different Yeah, and it could be really intimate too if you want it to yeah. be. He just, a lot of different combinations that are possible, yeah. Now, I want to say something about this next album. Mm. This was one of those albums where I said, I looked at it and I said, oh, I don't have much time. I'll listen to this album because it has eight tracks. <laughs> and it wound up being massively long. Yeah, 75 <laughs> minutes or so. Yeah, 73 <laughs> minutes. Now, I'm not complaining about that, but I'm just saying as a podcaster, right. sometimes we're pressed for time. And I got to like, yeah. look for this thing. I always choose the wrong one to listen to in that little window that I have. Anyway, this is another good album. Yeah, we're going to swell up our ensembles to a full big band. And uh, yeah, one of the one of the great big bands in the world, the WDR Big Band. Right. And this is on Summit label. And what's special about this is it features uh, the arrangements of Chuck Owen. And it's called Renderings. It came out on July 21st. Chuck Owen, originally from Norfolk, Virginia, he spent his elementary school days in Omaha, Nebraska before... His family moved to Cincinnati. He's got a BM in music education with a trombone concentration from the University of North Texas. He went on to get a master's degree in orchestral conducting at California State University, Northridge, uh, before spending another couple of years in L.A. freelancing and apprenticing with wow. film and TV composer Patrick Williams. In 1981, he joined the faculty in jazz studies at the University of South Florida, and the jazz studies program there quickly became acknowledged as one of the best in the country. And he retired from there after 40 years, 
in 2021. Yeah, California State University is where I got my uh, master's degree in oh, wow. Dominguez Hills. Oh, yeah. cool. So his compositions have been performed throughout the world uh, by the Netherlands Metropole Orchestra, WDR Big Band, Brussels Jazz Orchestra, Aarhus Big Band, Smithsonian Jazz Masterworks Orchestra, Tonight Show Orchestra, Cincinnati Symphony, and others. Since 1995, his main creative outlet has been his own 19-piece jazz surge. He serves as the conductor as well as primary composer-arranger, and he's produced each of the surge's seven recordings. Whispers on the Wind, released in 2017, uh, got four Grammy nominations, uh, including Best Composition. And then River Runs, 2013, uh, it was a five-movement genre-bending orchestra big band hybrid. And then The Comet's Tale, 2009, also received Grammy nominations. The most recent 2021 recording, Within Us, got a lot of attention from critics as well. But this is his first full album project with WDR Big Band, uh, and it includes some interesting material. There's one standard, there's a Chick Corea work here, and his own originals, three of those, and three from band members. So I thought this would be interesting to check out. And I always want to see what's going on with WDR because Billy Test is their piano player and also right. on organ. So I always want to hear uh, his playing when I get a chance to do that. So WDR is the, uh, let's see if we can butcher some German, Westdeutscher Rundfunk Köln, which is the West German Broadcasting Cologne Big Band. Yeah, they really swing when oh, they, they want do. to. Yeah. But uh, this, these arrangements are a little more sophisticated, though. They're yeah. Kinda... Anyway, let's go through what we've got here, uh, starting out with Owen's original Knife's Edge for track one. It's a high-energy tune to get things going. Tight trumpet and piano rhythmic lines get it started with the beat marked out by cymbals. Saxes swirl in with big, low trombone lines, and then the bones pick up the rhythmic figures. The horn arrangement builds up with sections of the rhythm section dropping out, highlighting the horns, and then accenting the rhythms. At a minute and 20 seconds, it reaches a climax with percussive piano chords out of nowhere, and then a final horn blast that gets a burning tenor sax solo from Paul Heller started. And the rhythm section is in full force swing over walking bass. The solo baton is passed to Andy Harderer on trumpet with high and clear lines, and then Heller and Harderer get more exchanges, building up to a frenzy with big horn lines cheering them on. It resets to a calmer and longer kind of horn lines from the trombone section at 3 minutes and 20 seconds. Saxes with soft brass get it next to phrases with lots of space for Hans Decker's drums to fill in. The horn arrangement builds more and more with thunderous drum intervals and Heller and Harderer get a final section of exchanges before a final floating horn line and trumpet blast end it. In short, Knife's Edge is a really good name for this track. Yeah, it is. It really <laughs> gets things sharpened up. Track yeah. two is also an Owen original dot 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 and your point is, <laughs> I like that, a unique start with snare-centered drums and funky syncopated tuba bass lines yeah. from Mattis Sederberg. Muted staccato guitar and Hammond organ from Billy Test float in before the saxes start a legato flowing melody that gets built up with brass lines on top before it fades and builds in sections again. The drum beat keeps the same feel going. Andy Hunter on trombone gets the first solo, then 
Gabor Bola on tenor sax, who we've heard before back in episode 48, his uh, solo recording on our episode, uh, Crafty Complications. That was pretty uh, good recording. I remembered his name. Uh, after his solo, more exchanges between the two soloists with a building horn arrangement. There's a solo break for Billy Test to get going on some percussive organ lines. And the tuba bass line comes back in down below. Test works up skittering lines with horns weaving in and out, finishing up down low on the organ. That brings Sederberg back alone with syncopated uh, lines on the tuba over lighter and clicky drums here. Horn lines interject and build up to a short drum solo from Hans Decker. And the horn arrangement builds again to screaming trumpets and then comes down soft for a final section, building up and fading to a tuba and drum ending with a final hit. Track three of Mystery and Beauty, and this is an original by the alto saxophone player in the big band, Carolina Strassmeyer. It's a mysterious mix of sounds to begin. Sparse bass, muted brass, piano, and it sounds like xylophone or something malleted in there. Maybe it's vibes, I don't know. Uh, the bass by John Goldsby is left alone to develop a solo rhythmic ringing melody with lots of intervals and double stops. He sets a new rhythmic push picked up by the guitar. Horn lines flow in with exchanges of lines from Sarah Coswell's violin and Carolina Strassmeyer's alto sax. It's lyrical, warm, and flowing. Strassmeyer carries on with an improvised solo. She has a rich tone and intense phrases of discovery that also get a cutting edge at times. The band swells around to a big climax, and she continues on with softer phrases on her sax over piano, bass, and drums for a bit. There's a return to the opening mysterious mood to bring in Caswell on violin to develop a solo. The backing ebbs and flows with the drum beat sometimes getting thick and heavy and the horns blasting. She works up to an intense high registers sort of area of phrases and the horn arrangement swells and then brings it down for delicate sax and violin exchanges and a final mysterious section over rhythmic bass to end it. Track four, This Love of Mine a tune by Saul Parker and Hank Sanicola. It's a pop song that was first recorded in 1941. Tommy Dorsey and his orchestra with Frank Sinatra on vocals. Hmm. So Billy Tess starts it out with a tasty and imaginative opening of piano over ringing bass and soft drum brushing. Soft guitar and horn lines add in behind his lines with a mix of woodwind tones, including flute. Paul Heller gets to take the melody on tenor sax with singing lines as the full band works up around him. He continues on to an improvised solo with rhythmically snappy and swirly double-time phrases, getting in some high wails as well. It's an intense solo with big band buildup. Rude Bruels is up next on trumpet, set sail by exciting backing lines and blasts into a flowing lyrical solo over the walking bass. And the band builds it up more, bringing back Heller for more sax lines and a band arrangement with screaming trumpets. And it interestingly settles into a more R&B feel, with some uh, guitar underneath for Heller to continue on passionately to the end. Track five, Fall Calls. And this is by the bassist of the band, John Goldsby. A flowing atmospheric tune built around interaction between three musicians. It opens with a mix of pleading cries from Andy Hunter's trombone, Carolina Strassmeyer's alto sax, and Philip Bromswig's guitar. Soft horn lines develop around the slowly developing theme and more exchanges of the three instruments. Strassmeyer's melody develops to a trumpet explosion at 3 minutes and 20 seconds. Things come down softly for Bromswick to work up an expressive and clean attacked guitar solo. Strassmeyer and Hunter join in 
for joint improvisations, and the band arrangement swells more and more and gets swinging. Things quiet down suddenly with ringing piano and guitar over bass for soft lines to build up the band again, and then soft flute lines escort the sax and trombone to final quiet fading lines. Track six is Arabian Nights by Chick Corea. Starts with oscillating soft sax lines that bring in Coswell's violin again with interesting modal lines. It simmers quietly and eventually a processional beat forms and then becomes a Latin feel. Muted trumpets and a mix of woodwinds, sounds like clarinets in there too, make a lush arrangement over deep electric bass accompanying Caswell's melodic phrases. There's a big wall of sound with trumpets on top building up to more delicate phrases than shared and traded with violin and alto sax from Johann Horlin. Bromswig emerges with a gnarly and edgy guitar solo. It sounds like electric piano in this tune as well. There are cool trombone and bass trombone backing lines below, and Horland gets an alto sax solo with a new funky rhythmic development with bass and electric piano. The horns work up over hard-hitting drums with Coswell's violin returning to center stage for a final section with Horland and a build-up to the end with a quick and tricky final line <laughs> to a blast. It's a long tune at almost 12 minutes. There's a lot of things going on here. Track 7, back to an Owen original, A Ridge Away. Rolling cymbals and rubato long notes with warm flute tones make an intro into a slow brush drum beat and a warm solo trumpet, or maybe flugelhorn, melody from Rude Bruhls. The backing lines are lush in a Gil Evans kind of way. That's what I was reminded of on this tune. Mm -hmm. Bruhls gets a delicate and fluttery improvised solo, and then it's over to Billy Test for a piano solo. Shows off that great touch of his on ringing high notes and trickling lines. Bruhls returns for more improvised lines amidst soft and rich swelling horn lines that build an intensity to a big wall of sound, and Bruhls gets to make the final statements over lush and quiet lines just like in the intro. And we're going to end with the eighth track, Canoe, by the alto sax player of the band, Johan Horlin. Horlin starts out solo with melody lines over a medium tempo bouncing bass. Other saxes join his lines softly, and then the other horn section's parts join in with some bass clarinet and flute phrases sticking out slightly from the mix, interestingly, for little phrases. The trombones get a line fortified with trumpets as the lines get traded off, I like the independent bass trombone line that really stands out as well. Horland continues on with an improvised solo. It's flighty and expressive. Ludwig Nuss follows on trombone with tight and energetic phrases of tricky slide work. There's a lot going on in the backing arrangement lines. Next is a woodwind section solo of flute and clarinets that ends suddenly for the brass to take over a solo with fun rhythmic interaction between the trumpets and trombones. Then things get swinging with the full band to a big build-up and then a quieter section of sax flute and clarinet over the trombones to a soft ending. And that wraps it up. Rich and inventive arrangements of a variety of compositions. This big band can play anything well. These are yeah. killer musicians. And Owen must have had a great feeling of satisfaction making a whole album of an hour and 13 minutes of arrangements for them. There are subtle sections of woodwind and muted brass textures, huge walls of powerful brass sound, and everything in between. The thematic material and rhythmic feels are varied. There's a lot to dig into on this recording, and balancing out the arrangements are outstanding solos, especially by Carolina Strassmeyer, Sarah Coswell, Billy Test, Philip Remswig, and more. 
Last week's episode, we heard Javier Nero and Doug Beaver's ensembles, and uh, this week's octet, nonet, and Owen's big band orchestrations have given me a lot to enjoy and a real assurance that the art of arranging is as strong and creative as ever. It's been a great two uh, weeks of jazz, really, yeah. for the adult music podcast. I've enjoyed all these records, too. This particular album has some you know, great playing on it, as we expect, uh, high energy, too. Yeah. And the slower tracks are really evocative. But I'd say the highlight on this album is the creative arranging. We get to hear the band play together a lot, you know, right. and then solos will sort of come out. I'm thinking here of like track three of Mystery and Beauty with its amorphous... Sometimes yeah. twinkling clouds of sound that seem to part for the solos. Mm. Really enjoyed that. And Fall Calls, where there's a lot of harmony playing by the ensemble for long periods. Right. And I also like the brief wind harmony, which was really surprising. Kind of sounds like something out of a classical work. Um, in track eight, Canoe, right. uh, which you can hear at the four minute and 20 second mark of that track. It just kind of came out of nowhere and then disappeared. Mm. You know, it was amazing. All the arrangements are pretty complex, full of surprising sectional changes, and the soloing goes for mostly bright tones. These guys really played out. Large sections of these tracks sound composed to me, and I'm kind of wondering what the charts look like. I wonder how many actual <laughs> notes are actually written on the charts as opposed to just chords. You know? It might be like some of those Sunra blue insert uh, charts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think you have to tell people what that is. Did you ever mention that? Yeah, I've mentioned it a couple of times, yeah. Okay. Yeah, was, well. uh, rather than codas, <laughs> when I had a chance to play some of uh, Sun Ra's arranger's <laughs> compositions, they had all these different colored inserts. You would get to the end of the page and they'd say, go to the gold insert. And that was another <laughs> four pages in the green <laughs> insert. It's so, uh, But he left the last insert on his hotel bed, so we never got to finish the piece. That's funny. Yeah. Oh, these boy. must be some... Really uh, dense and long charts, but uh, the end result is really cool. I just want to mention, just in conclusion, that the sound quality on this album, as well as all of the jazz albums we heard this week, and I think even last week, too, were just fantastic. Yeah. We've just been hearing some great uh, sound quality, and these are very CD-worthy recordings. Yeah, I'd like to have copies of all of these. I really like these, you know, from medium sized. Of course, I always like big band, but even these medium sized uh, ensembles they're, give you a lot of things intriguing. to listen to. Yeah. yeah. All right. There you go. The ensembles eight, nine, and then I don't know how many are in this big band. They don't have a listing of all the members, right. but, you know, probably 18, 19 yeah. musicians in total here. So, yeah, it's been an exciting uh, two weeks of large ensembles. And, well, next week, as we said, we're going to, rather than go with a theme, we'll be uh, just combining some things uh, to get to some recordings we want to. And I'm going to be pared down quite a bit in the size. I've got a no, vibes quartet. I've got a panel and bass duo with a vocal guest in there as well. And then I've got a trio. So we're going to relax a little bit on the uh, large ensembles and go for something a little more intimate next week in jazz. How about in classical? I think we're going to have a lot of uh, paprika in the uh, and exotic spices Ooh. in the uh, classical end uh, next week with um, a trip to Italy in the Middle East, to Spain, and then to the American Gamelan Orchestra, Ooh. Wow. <laughs> which... Which involves Bali to an extent, but uh, it's not the same uh, gamelan as Bali has. Right. It's, it's going to take a lot of unpacking. I'm going to have to figure <laughs> out what I'm going to say. It's, that's what I'm going to be doing this week, trying to figure out how I'm going to explain that. I, right. I wrote to the composer, and I kind of hope he writes back, because I kind of need some information about right. what he's doing on this album. Well, that sounds we'll see interesting. see if he responds. Yeah. 
Anyway, if you'd like to uh, get a start early hearing those recordings, as we're listening to them, trying to put them into words, shortly after this uh, podcast is uploaded, you'll be able to find uh, the playlist on Deezer and also a link to it on our Facebook page. So uh, if you want to check that out early, look for that after this episode comes out. As always, thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. And remember, do check out the Same Difference podcast, Two Jazz Fans, One Standard. There's a link in the description. And after we sign off here, there'll be a little promo from them introducing their podcast. All right, Mike, this has been episode 125. That's a kind of significant number. Yeah, is how what is that like a hundred and a quarter or something? Or? Hundred and a quarter, yeah, I guess. What anniversary would that be if we were married? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what diamond is seventy five? I guess no one ever went that far to diamond would be the uh, the hardest uh, thing. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, more and more episodes in the bank, and uh, yeah. lots more good things to come. We look forward to uh, a change up for next week, a little bit of uh, exotic world music and some more intimate jazz things. And so have a good week. Stay cool in this hot summer. Yeah. Uh, get inside in the AC and uh, get on the music and uh, do some you listening. Know, you know, just get in an icy cold bathtub and just put set up your speakers <laughs> in there. And just hang yeah. out and chill out to the uh, cool keep the tones. Keep the amp away from the water, though. Please. Yeah, just keep the amp away from the water. Although I think a lot of those won't uh, <laughs> are kind of waterproof these days. I don't know. Well, I don't know. Unless about you're going to get a big stereo in there. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, yeah, yeah, safety first. Safety first, please. Anyway, we'll be back again next week with episode 126. So until then, keep listening, and we'll see you again next time. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.